Hit us up on Facebook and Twitter. Sign up for the newsletter so you never miss an update. The sponsor of today's episode is Indeed. No successful entrepreneur is an island. It takes a core team of trusted advisors to help build a business from the ground up. When it comes to hiring, leave it to the experts. You need Indeed. Indeed is a hiring partner that gets you what you really want, a short list of quality candidates as fast as possible because you can do it all. Attract, interview, and hire all at Indeed. So don't struggle on your own to find quality candidates. I know exactly how hard that can be, and Indeed can help you hire the right people right now. They help you every step of the way. You can find talent with the skills you need through tools like Indeed's Instant Match assessments and virtual interviews. And with Instant Match, for example, as long as you sponsor a post, you get a short list of qualified candidates whose resumes on Indeed match your job description, and you can even invite them to reply right away. So I've used Indeed before, checked it out. I highly recommend it. It's very simple to use. And with Instant Match, over 90% of employers get quality candidates as soon as they sponsor their job post, according to Indeed data. Candidates who invite to apply through Instant Match are three times more likely to apply to your job than those who see it in search, according to Indeed data. In my opinion, by far the best place to go find somebody for your job. So get started right now with $75 sponsored job credit to upgrade your job post at Indeed.com slash SPI. Get a $75 credit at Indeed.com slash SPI. Indeed.com slash SPI. Offer valid through December 31st. Terms and conditions apply. Need a hire? You need Indeed. We all make mistakes in business. I have made several, and I'm going to talk about many of the mistakes that I've made in the next episode in our follow-up Friday episodes. But we're going to talk today with Los Silva. And Los Silva is somebody who I recently met who I've been just fascinated by because he is coming from the e-commerce space. He has a website, ecompowerhouse.com. That's with one M, E-C-O-M, powerhouse.com. But in getting to know Los, I've begun to realize that his secret to success is actually very different than what a lot of people talk about. And you'll find that as you listen to this episode, that is, it's kind of almost counterintuitive. But when you really break it down, it kind of makes sense. And it's a good kick in the butt for some of us. It was a good kick in the butt for me to listen to this episode because sometimes the best way to grow is to actually slow down. And I think many of us who are here listening to this episode today, well, you're listening to this for a reason. So I invite you to sit back, relax, enjoy this episode with Los Silva. And he's gonna talk about his origin story a little bit which is really interesting coming from the eBay world and having gone through a lot of failures himself and then finally landing on something that he just was really good at and then he leaned into. And that's kind of the story that you often hear and I'm so happy because this is one of those hero's journeys and now this hero, Los, is gonna be sharing his advice with us. So sit back, relax, it's gonna be awesome. Here we go. Welcome to the Smart Passive Income Podcast, where it's all about working hard now, so you can sit back and reap the benefits later. And now your host, he's secretly plotting to win a Pokemon card tournament one day, Pat Flynn. 
What's up, everybody? Pat Flynn here, and welcome to session 523 of the Smart Passive Income Podcast. Thank you so much for joining me. My name is Pat Flynn, here to help you make more money, save more time, and help more people, too. And all those three things have to happen, right? I think that in order to be fulfilled, those three things have to happen, right? Yes, making more money, that's gonna be the result of helping more people. But we wanna do it in a way that saves us time. I know a lot of people who make a lot of money who have very successful businesses, but they don't have successful lives, and I think Los, as a fellow father, he and I connected, and uh, I, th- I think you're gonna enjoy this episode. So here he is, Los Silva from ecompowerhouse.com. Los, welcome to the Smart Passive Income Podcast. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me, man. Yeah, excited. I'm so stoked to chat business growth with you and all the things that seem to slow us down and how we can get out of that. That's exactly what you're an expert on. You have these amazing companies that you work with with different business owners. And we're going to talk about some of those things too. But I want to get to know you, Los, and kind of how you got here. Uh, what, what's your origin story in terms of marketing and business growth? I've been doing this for close to 20 years. I'm old, dude. I'm, I'm going to turn 40 <laughs> in uh, September. Hey, man, we're, we're close. I'm 38. I turned 39 in December. So we're, we're in the same generation. Yeah. yeah, good, good. I started doing stuff on eBay when I was in college. And I started flipping video projectors and Crown Victorias. It sounds super weird, but I just found like items that were expensive. And my, my friend had like a dealership where he could, you know, you could go out and get the crowns. And so we'd, we'd sell those and I'd flip them on eBay and then we'd sell in focus video projectors. From there, I was like, man, these have good margin. I'm making pretty mm-hmm. good money. I was making like 400, I remember I was making $480 per video projector on eBay. Then I was like, man, what else can I sell? So I became a distributor for some electronics. And in those was uh, Bose speakers. I couldn't sell it. So it was kind of like black hat, but I didn't know anything. I was like, oh yeah, you know, let's throw it up there and see what Uh happens. It turns out like I ended up becoming like one of the top sales guys. That business became one of the top reps for Bose until until I got kicked out of eBay because I wasn't supposed to be doing that. From there on, I just kind of kept doing stuff online. I didn't know that that was an algorithm and stuff. I didn't know anything, right? And so from yeah. there, I just kind of started doing more e-commerce. That got me into weird things like JBZoo and Warrior Forum. And I started like reading how to make money online, buying courses. And I bought this one course from a good friend of mine now, Ryan Dice, and called Let's Get Social. I started implementing it. And I was like, man, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to work with that guy one day. I learned media buying. And then from there on, I made a course. I put it on Udemy so long ago. It's mm-hmm. called Media Buying Academy. Uh, Ryan bought it. And then he ended up publishing me. So from there on, I started like connecting with them and we did some projects and just kind of started doing more and more and learning about just e-commerce all the way to, I've done everything except for affiliate marketing. So Mm -hmm. I've, you know, I've built brands, sold brands in e-commerce in the, in the high ticket space in the event space in the just digital ascension, kind of like digital product space as well. And so I'm, at the end of the day, I kind of look at everything almost the same because I've done it for so long. But that's pretty much how I got started, man. That that whole journey is about 12 years of just up and, ups and downs and ups and downs until you kind of like start finding your path and you're like, okay, I think I know what I'm doing. This seems yeah. to be pretty consistent. Now I kind of just feel like I just do the same thing over and over again, you know? How long did it take you to get to that point where you're like, oh, I'm in my groove now? Was it right away? How long did it take? No, no. It probably took me three years. The first year, I can tell you, I made $30,000. The second year, I think I made like 60. And the mm-hmm. third year, I made 135. The fourth, it was like 500. And then I was like, wow. all right, I think I know what I'm doing. And then from there on, we just kept growing and growing and growing. But it, it was ups and downs and ins and outs. And I tried everything. It 
because you know you you don't know what you don't know so you might as well try try everything and you don't know what niche you're going to go in you're there's so much to do online it's like kind of what's going on with like crypto and nfts now and all these things yeah there's so many ways you can grab a hold of something but i learned like okay i'm gonna be good at like media buying and understanding how to make money through emails and kind of like just focused on that and now if you can do that with one thing to a degree you can kind of do it with with everything you know what i mean how did you land on that niche? I think that when you said, you know, you're going here, you're going there, a lot of people listening can resonate with that because there are so many options. How did you land on that? And how would you recommend people who are really in the ups and downs right now? How do you help them land that plane in, in a specific lane? I will tell you to do do more at the beginning. You know, everyone's going to say, focus on one thing. What What is that? And what if it sucks? You know, for me, it came yeah. down to a point of like, I was poor. Like I didn't have money once the eBay thing stopped. Like, kind of had to start from scratch again. I, I tried to go be a waiter and I, I had done so much for so long that I was, I couldn't even be a waiter. So I was just struggling to try to find, find my way. And I kept going to all these events and there's, you're doing podcasting. This guy's doing content marketing. Like you don't know. So the, the big thing that I realized is like, okay, people are going to pay to get leads. And so I should probably learn how to have a, an acquisition way of getting leads. And mm-hmm. so that was like my first thing. And then as I was going to all these events, I also heard a lot of people talk about back end. And I didn't know what that was. I was like, I'm good at building people's back end. They're like, what? Yeah. And so I just started working on the all right, now that people come through the front door, how are we keeping people? Right. And so mm-hmm. inadvertently by accident, I learned how to like do front end marketing and then how to monetize people on the back end. And I as far as like niching down I still don't have a niche. Now it's even more kind of like broad, right? But I did a lot of different things. I, I will tell you, a lot of people tell you to go with your passion. I think that that, that makes sense if you're established. But at the beginning, you got to go with what is making traction for you, what's mm-hmm. getting you momentum. You know, you might not be passionate about local marketing, but if you have 10 accounts, it's easier to scale that to 20 than it is to jump onto affiliate marketing or build a podcast that's going to take realistically five years to really go with. Once you have the opportunity now, I just do things I love. Like my business partners are my best friends. I don't do yep. business with people. I, I think you you have to earn that opportunity. At the beginning, you kind of just have to be scrappy and and just do what you got to do. You know what I mean? Yeah. And be okay with being scrappy. And being scrappy yeah. means you're going to mess up a little bit. You're going to not know. You're going to have to take, like you said, chances. I remember doing the same thing, saying yes to opportunities just because I wanted to force myself to learn those things. And sometimes you go with it, sometimes you don't. But as long as you're like, okay, this is a part of the process. This is the journey. I will find my way to that thing eventually, as long as I keep going. But it could be hard, dude. Like I know some people, they just get so down, whether it's because of their perfectionist mindset, they don't launch because, or they don't do things because it's not perfect, or they try it once and they fail and they've been conditioned like how I was that you have to be an A plus student. If you're not good at something, like don't, don't do it. How do you break out of that mindset thing? Cause I, I mean, you know, this and everybody knows it's all about what happens in the mind, right? How do yeah. you approach the mind when it comes to success in business? So I think, I think you've got to fail. You have to, I think it's the most amazing, perfect, great thing. If you just have never, you'll never really be that successful. You have to understand that failure is, is opportunity to learn. And mm. it, it humbles you at the same time. Like you can't just, everyone wants to win because you see what happens, especially now for people that are just starting with social media, like everyone is great, right? Everyone's perfect. Everyone's beautiful. Everyone's right. great. And that's just not true, man. Like everyone's failing in secrecy. 
and they're not speaking about it enough. But like, you can't look at someone's, you know, I can't look at you if I want to start a podcast today, even with an audience and expect like, well, I should be like Pat. You've put a decade into this, man. You know, like you've done so much work, like you deserve exactly to be where you are because you've put in that time. People have the audacity sometimes and the nerves to be like, well, I should kind of, I should kind of just jump in that and I'll, I'll hit your numbers fast. I'm like, man, that's not going to work, dude. Like everything you work on your body, it takes time to like bulk or cut or get in a certain shape. You, you want to learn jujitsu. It's going to take a decade to, for you to get a black belt. Like you want to go to college. It's going to take you years to get a degree, to get a job, to get good at that. Like, why don't you give this the respect and time that it deserves, you know? And if you think about it, like, man, this is my career. This is where I want to go. You would be a little bit more okay with the time and the learnings and the failures and the, and the climb, so to speak. So I think that for people that are beginning, you got to look at things. It's a, it's a slow climb. And then mindset is what's going to keep you. Ego is really a big part of what's going to keep you from moving forward. Cause then you become good at something and then you're like, well, I don't want to give it to Steve who works here. Cause I'm better than that. Well, you're, you've got to move There's seasons in business, right? Like this season you, you hustled. And then this next season, you've got to learn to hire and delegate and be good. Mm. And then next season you've got to learn to, to lead. And then next season you've got to learn to create and then, and step completely back. And that could take forever. That could, that, that could be a whole book. You know what I mean? That could be right. the whole play that everyone wants to just jump in fast because everyone's screenshotting Ferraris and stuff on social media. Most of that stuff's rented and it's not fulfilling. You didn't get into this business or life to buy a Ferrari. And if you did, honestly, like that's super, that's super petty. Like you, you, you shouldn't want that. You, you got in here for freedom of time, freedom of choice. That's what I love about business. I have time freedom. I have choice freedom. I get to hang out who with the people I want, the people I respect, the people I admire. I get to learn. I get, I get to take the time off. That's more important than, than the cars and the things. So don't get lost inside of that because you can mm -hmm. you can get very lost and that's that's where your mind can go because you're not keeping it clean and focused on yourself that's so key i mean so many takeaways there we often have to zoom out sometimes or get outside perspective on things because we're so sucked into it as, as i often say you can't read the label when you're inside, inside the bottle right. getting around people like you said is is really important and, and i love your take on failure being a part of the process i was listening to one of my kids i know you have a couple kids as well they're in school, right? And they had their orientations for the year. And I was listening in on Zoom. And the teacher was like, fail. We want your kids to fail. And you have to support us with that. Because failing is just, it stands for first attempt in learning, F-A-I-L. And I was like, oh, man, I'm so glad they're finally teaching this in school. Because I was conditioned to hate failure, that failure was bad. And so definitely, again, it's all about the mindset, like you said, and taking things in seasons. I love that too, because I think a lot of us try to you know, as much as it's important to stay consistent, sometimes you need to take a break. I know a lot of entrepreneurs take sabbaticals and stuff to walk away from stuff for a while and then come back in even stronger. And as Gary Vee often says, having that macro patience for results, but micro hustle in certain moments on certain things. When we finally start to get our groove, like you said, this is oftentimes where either ego comes into play. Oh, I don't want to hire people because only I can do this. Or, you know, I can't trust anybody else with this. But as you know, you have to, get out of that mindset when it comes to growth. And let's talk about like the biggest mistakes that people make when they finally have a business kind of going and the things that stop them from going to where they could uh, as far as growth and, and things that keep them where they're at or even, even burnout. So in your mind, maybe let's start with the one that comes to, to mind first. It is first and foremost ego of, of wanting more and not thinking uh, 
really just about the business. And secondly, I think that it's also not hiring slowly. Everyone wants to, you read these books and everyone's always talking about, oh, hire fast, fire faster, blah, blah, blah. Like think about who you need immediately to start taking some of your time. If your business is scaling, you're, you're going to need people. That's, that's what's going to mm -hmm. come next, right? It's either people or you're, you're going to grow your business through more people, more opportunities, more, more SKUs or more, more offers. So more is going to require more time demands. And so you need to think of like, okay, I've got this map for the business. And right now the reality is you probably need an, an assistant. And that's the first thing you're going to need, right? The second thing is maybe I need to outsource and hire a media buyer, or I need to bring some people in, right? Uh, and what people tend to do, this, this is where they kind of suffer. They'll just throw that to somebody. Oh, that's an agency? Yeah, it works. Hey man, do it. Do the work. You're hired to mm -hmm. do the work. Well, I need, I need better understanding what the work is. I need, I need you to have more passion for this right now. I need you to be dialed in on the numbers. I need you to have a good idea of like what I'm doing so you don't get screwed over, you know? You need to take patience with people and teach people and learn people unless you're in a position in a bigger position where you can just go hire someone who's an expert, but even then you should know a little bit about what you're actually having conversations about. I think people just give their business away quickly and then they're like, "Oh yeah, that guy ruined it for me." Dude, you mm -hmm. ruined it for yourself, right? Because it's your it's your baby, it's your business and you're out here kind of like handing it out, like got this email guy, got this guy, this guy says he's good. All right, let's see what you can do. They're paid to do something, but like they're only paid to create something for you. You're the one that has to give them direction and, and teach them how to do this. And I think people just kind of, it's a huge mistake I see with people. They just hand their business away and they let go. They're like, yeah, I'm, I'm delegating. I'm a delegator. Do you think that's maybe influenced a little bit by a lot of the like the Tim Ferriss era and four hour work week and like how cool it is to delegate and hand things off. I mean, there, there's obviously benefits to that, but what you're saying is, well, maybe we're doing it without a lot of thought or intention. Right. Right. I think the, the context sometimes is lost on, on those conversations, right? Everyone thinks let's delegate, but you're talking the, a person who's saying it, let's say it's a Gary B or a Tim, right? Those guys have big companies they have to delegate because they're moving into different directions and you're taking it mm -hmm. in and like, yeah, I just got to let my business go. And at first your business is your baby. You have to take care of it. You got to nurture it. You got to plant and give it water and you got to really kind of take it every step of the way. Sometimes if you delegate too quickly, no one's going to be able to do anything with it because there's nothing really there yet, right? Let's say this business is doing like $20,000 a month. It's not really mm -hmm. a business yet. Let's, you know, let's be candid about that. And if you're already giving it away at 20, then what are you giving? Like, what all is it doing right now? Who's doing what? You know, delegation comes from knowing what someone needs to hand off and knowing exactly what those KPIs, key performance indicators are for that other person to do the work and having an expectation and that is managed for success. Yeah. That's a strong way to delegate something. You know, if I just said, hey, Pat, like, I'm, help me grow this podcast. What's the podcast? How many times are you going to do it? Like, what's the direction? Like, what kind of audio are you using? There's so much that goes into it. If I just throw it at you and I'm like, oh, he didn't really help me. He sucks. Like, I suck. I didn't give you direction. We, we didn't have like a real like identity to like what the goal was in this conversation and what our goal is in X amount of time, X amount of testing, et cetera. You know, you got to be more dialed in with your business. Everyone is in a rush at the beginning to just make yeah. money. 
but no one sits back for a second and goes, hey, who am I talking to specifically? What am I doing? What am I willing to sell? What am I willing to, who am I willing to serve? What do I need past my assistant? Like, what am I really unskilled at that I I can learn a basis just to have a conversation or hire someone to teach me the, the conversational pieces so I can then go delegate that task. And what are the KPIs inside of that particular thing that I'm not very good at? Now I know that that's handled. I'm going to stay in my strong suits and speak or podcast or, or sell, whatever the case, right? I think that is a strong sense of delegation, but people just use it as an excuse to say like, yeah, I read it in a book. It's, you know, so I just want to get rid of the business fast. Like a founder gets rid of the business. Prior to that, you have to be an operator and then a CEO, and then you can be a founder and be like, I'm, I'm outside mm-hmm. of that now. I have, I have a few companies that I don't run. I, frankly, I don't even really know who works there because I have CEOs inside that company. But it took me 10 years or eight years for that business to stand on its feet. I was a CEO mm-hmm. prior to that. And, you know, it took a year to interview this person to, to manage that business. We took all the steps that were necessary and appropriate for that to all happen. You're not going to grow something that you're trying to let go of that fast. Yeah, I mean, it's like having a kid, right? Like imagine... Yeah having a kid and then just being like, yeah, go. And 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 you got to nurture it. You got to help it stand up, like you said. And right. I love what you said about working with others. And honestly, that's a good indicator as far as, you know, that's the right company to work with. Because if they're asking you those questions, like, okay, well, what are the key KPIs here? And, and what are the things that we need to look at? And who is it that's that we're doing this for? Well, then that's a good sign that, okay, that is a person or a company that you could potentially imagine supporting the business the way that you would support it. Right. Versus right. like you said, just like, okay, go. And then they create it. And it's like, it's lifeless at that point. So I love this idea of slowing down a little bit. You also mentioned when you mentioned one of the biggest problems that often gets in the way is our own ego mm-hmm. when it comes to growth and just growing because that's what everybody's supposed to do, growing to grow. And I love, I love to chat about that really quick before we get into some perhaps marketing strategies and things mm-hmm. that can help us amplify what we have. But you know, we had a person on the show once before, his name is Paul Jarvis, and he taught, uh, he has a book called The Company of One, basically meaning like, hey, guys, like, let's slow down. And let's consider, okay, well, do you need to grow? Like, let's make decisions based on your actual goals, not just because your friend's growing or everybody else is growing, or you read it in a book. What's your take on purpose and business and growth, and how to know when to scale up, or maybe it's okay to not do, do so? I've done this for a long time. And for a long time, I just had an ego of wanting to compete with other people because that's what I used to learn at masterminds. Everyone's like, well, what are you doing? Well, he's doing 100. He's doing two. He's doing three. He's doing four. So I, I got to be there. I got to be a part of the conversation. And it didn't do anything for me. It didn't help me. I didn't get better. I didn't get bigger. When I stopped looking at everyone and start looking at myself, like, what do I want? I love my kids. I want to hang out with my kids. I want to do vacations with my friends and business partners. And that becomes like X amount of money, right? And I'm like, all right, I can afford that. So that's what I'm doing this for. Then I started to let go and I started to be a little bit more like, it felt fresher to like not compete, not compare. And business just started to work for me more because I wasn't yeah. working. I wasn't working to be something that I didn't even want. And I think that we the beauty and the bad side about social media is that like we are subliminally conditioned to want things that other people have. And because you don't sit down yet and go like, man, that's not me. You know, I just did a podcast with my buddy Cody and we were talking about what do you want? What do people want? And we're like, oh, do I, I want to get more money. For, why? I want to get a big house. Why? Because it's got to fit my nice car. Why? Because that's what you have. Why? Oh, well, I don't know. Like you don't even know. <laughs> 
And, and you got into this business, like I said, everyone gets in because like they need to make something and then they want freedom or, or they had a job and they're like, man, that sucked. I didn't like the way I was treated and all that. You think you can do better. But then you get lost once you get into the cycle of social and groups and this or whatever. And you're like, yeah, I'm just competing to compete. You're not even competing to, to win for yourself or win for your family. So, you know, I think that people need to go back and journal a little bit more, like kind of go back yeah. to like old school ways of doing things. And like, what was today? Did today make me happy? What's my goal? You know, going back to like that, that business that I was talking about, you know, I, I, for a while was trying to take that business to eight figures. And then I realized, man, like that's an HR issue. That's such, that's so many more hires, you know, uh, profitability at 10 million, it was about 10%. And at 5 million, which is kind of like where it's at, it's about 33%. I was like, I can have a smaller business and make more money that I'm not even like involved in. Like <laughs> that makes more sense than like, yeah, but it's not, but the other one's 10 and like Steve has a 10. Like who cares, dude? Like who cares? You know, you gotta, you gotta start being more selfish and, and start like selfish for yourself and for your family not selfish mm -hmm. for like competing on an ego basis because it won't serve you. It won't help you. It'll, it'll, if anything, cloud your judgment to make good decisions and to start letting go and start thinking more about your business. Every time I built a business, when I don't look around, it works faster. When I'm looking around, I'm like, oh, let me try this page. Let's do this. Let's do that. You're not, you're not in your own path. And I think people yeah. need to get into their own path more, you know? That's such wonderful advice. I mean, it's, it's hard though. Like you said, with social media, our friends, we got to play that comparison game. It just happens automatically. But it, when you compare yourself to yourself last week, to yourself last month, to yourself last year, that's where you win with competition. And that's that's what I used to struggle with. I've had my business for much longer than that person, but they're already more successful than me. Something must be wrong with me. Or let me go do it exactly what they're doing. And like you said, mm -hmm. I'm looking around. I'm not looking right in front of me. How many of you listening right now need to kind of put the blinders on? I think that's most right. of us sometimes. So, dude, so, so good. All right. I want to go through a little thought experiment with you. First of all, this has been awesome. You, you have something called Powerhouse. So before we get to the strategies, like what is Powerhouse? I know you have some really amazing things that you can do to self, help support others, right? So what, what is that? So Powerhouse is a company that I started with my partner, Josh Snow. And what we do is basically we we used to speak, but we still do. Like we speak all the time in places and we, we didn't find, we found that masterminds are just like, you know, they're amazing and it's kind of a mastermind, but it's just kind of like events and there's no real support inside of that. And so what we created was kind of like a consulting mastermind combination at the beginning. So what we do is you fly down here, we work with you quarterly, we help you with KPIs, we help you hire your team, we help you train your team, we do audits of your business. We don't do any like service work in that side, but mm -hmm. we basically take the mastermind experience. We have the three events and that whole thing. But also you have a full year of like getting custom bespoke, just work for you, like anything you need. We get in a call between 24 and 48 hours with you. Our team can help you. And our team spent $100 million online. Like we've built and sold companies. We've sent billions of emails. So like you're not talking to like Jerry who just like got a, new, a bachelor's. You know what I mean? Jerry, man. Um, so it's a, a lot of like really custom stuff. That's what we built with Powerhouse. And then as we started to see that people needed more stuff, we, we built a Powerhouse Accounting, which does accounting for econ brands, Powerhouse Support, which is all American support people, and then Powerhouse Campaigns, which is lifetime value and email marketing. And we're about to launch Powerhouse Teams, which is us training other people's teams with our frameworks, our systems, and our processes. So you you have better team members because a big thing that we've always found, right, is every like I said, everyone's always trying to hire someone quick 
It's like, well, you, you should probably hire more people in-house and have people learn systems and you should learn some systems and some processes. And uh, you need to know a little bit more about lifetime value and you need to know a little bit more about, you know, what's going on with ads, why, why your stuff isn't working. And you probably need some tough love sometimes on, you know, we've had a lot of people that have yeah. come through that were doing $6 million a year in COVID and then COVID like changed and they're like, hey, nothing's working anymore. Like, well, you kind of, that business had this kind of a ceiling. You need to pivot. You need to work on some different stuff, right? So it's kind of a combination of a, just really kind of an all-encompassing thing to help companies really scale and grow. And we really want to focus on just companies that are really delivering value. Like we don't do drop shipping and we don't work with companies that are just trying to make a buck because mm -hmm. we, we also help companies sell at the, at the back end of that. Like if you, if you have a company that's working, we just help the, a guy sell his company. And so we really want to work nice. with people that want to deliver value and create a lot of success and create capitalism, bring, bring employees on and like support people, you know? Where can people learn more to get access to you and those things? Where people can learn more is at uh, ecompowerhouse.com. That'll have kind of all of our information. We're actually having an event here. It'll probably pass for this, but it'll be uh, in November. Uh, and we're always having events and, and, and hosting different things like that. We're, we're big on building community. So yeah, ecompowerhouse.com. Nice. Awesome. Well, we'll put a link in the show notes for you and for everybody listening. Okay. Thought experiment. I have a product. I have a little bit of an audience built through a social media platform and maybe, you know, a YouTube channel or a podcast. I created my first course. I have no idea how to sell it. Yeah, I could send some emails out, but I know there's a lot more to it. How would you help a person like that maximize their opportunity with that product that they're selling? Man, I'm going to, I'm going to switch over here and, uh, I would tell them not to sell the product and to instead use social media to build a beta testing group of like 10 to 15 people and just create social media content. Let's say you have a little bit of little bit of YouTube, a little bit of Instagram, make content on Instagram, make stories, reach out to the people that are interested through a poll inside of the stories and then just have open conversations instead of selling something. Let's say the product costs like a hundred bucks. Instead of doing mm -hmm. that, say, hey, listen, this is going to come with a little bit of coaching, consulting and stuff as well. And we're going to do it for... 60 days and it's going to be $2,000. Okay. Sell those. That way you have money for ads later on and you have 10 to 20 testimonials that you can use. You're going to need testimonials before you launch something nowadays because everyone is going to focus on your reviews more than they're going to focus on your sales page. If you don't have reviews, if you've never done this, it's going to kind of be like, ah, it's going to suffer. But if you can go through the experiment of those 60 days, showing people on social media, taking videos, boop, like that, uh, and just showing people that like you're doing this, it's going to create more curiosity. It's going to get people more excited. More people will start backfilling for like, let's say the second cohort, and then you can launch it. And then you'll have a little bit of money for ads. You'll be able to do podcasts and create some videos that are live streamed or something like that inside of a Facebook group that you can create as a community as well and show people what you've done, how you've helped person go from X to Y and Z, and that'll give you more traction and it'll get you more notoriety. It'll get you more shares. And then you can consistently have those conversations inside of Instagram at the beginning. And then once things start to scale a little bit, you can start putting a little bit of money towards ads, but you can probably run this cycle until you get to like twenty, fifty thousand $50,000 and then try to take it into ads. I wouldn't recommend you just start from, from there because mm -hmm. you probably don't have the budget it's brand new for you. And there's no one really understands how strong organic marketing can be if you're just actually doing outbound and outreach and trying to connect it and also giving the value, being that guy that's on or girl that's on stories and making more content and creating all these things, you know? And a lot of people will be like, well, that's a lot of work. Yeah, 
business is a lot of work, <laughs> but you know, it's, it's technically going to be free. You know, it's your time, which clearly you have instead of going out and spending money on ads, because we don't know how that's going to convert. Most likely it's not going to convert. Well, you don't have enough of an audience. You probably don't even know right. who you're talking to because it's brand new and you have some followers, but you want to, you want to create this little cohort to see like who this resonates for. So you can tweak your marketing and your sales page and stuff as well. I love this. The big theme of today's conversation is like, you kind of have to do the work. Right. Like right. you can't just hand things off anymore. And I love this approach because you get real with what it is you're providing. It almost forces you to understand how to talk about it. And you get real time feedback. You get real time conversations in and around this thing. And I think that, again, not competing with the others who go, oh, I just had a seven figure launch or I just made tens of thousands of dollars on this launch. But getting, like you said, a small beta group to validate this, to test. And even if you fail on that, you're at least having conversations to learn what didn't work. So you can figure out work, what works better. It reminds me of this Benjamin Franklin quote. It was like, either write something worth reading or do something worth writing about. You're showing the story about it, right? You don't have anything to sort of share yet when you're just starting out. So you're, you're sort of collecting those things up front. So you're saying like, if I had spent time to actually create like a curriculum, maybe not even put it into a digital course quite yet, but like actually run people through it in a more cohort style first so I can get some testimonials before I then launch the digital version of that course and make it automated eventually. Yeah. Or if you already have it, let's say in a Kajabi or some teachable platform, whatever the case, yeah, yeah. Uh, you can say, here you go, but we're going to have class almost classes in session Mondays and Wednesdays. And we're going to go through the course, see where you guys are failing, see what problems are arising. And I'm going to create more content to fill the void. Cause they might be like, you know, you didn't explain video three very well where you talk about X, Y, Z. And I, I didn't mm. really get it. Okay, I'll do a better job with that video. So it's more dense and you can understand it a little bit better. Well, I, I'd love to have a PDF for this. Like there's nothing that I can just kind of grab. Okay, now I can make it better. You know what? I'm really struggling with something that's not even in the course. Okay, this is a problem that this avatar is really having. Now I know how to solve it. And you know, you, you're delivering value. You're, con you're also connecting with people. Like human connection in social media is often like really forgotten. And the, the people that are doing it the best and that have the biggest audience, uh, they have a deep relationship with that, that avatar, that person and that connection. And most people just want to get like that quick, like, Hey, let's sell 500 courses, blah, blah, blah. That's, yeah. that's just a lot of refunds waiting to happen because you're, you're just really throwing something out, expecting big returns. And I don't, I don't like to do the course thing. I think that if you create a lot of value, you can charge more and deliver a really good result for someone because you're putting in the time to help them or your team is putting in the time to help them. But I think it's a better approach than to just throw something out because you have some sort of audience and some sort of engagement because it could also backfire. You have not really gotten feedback on something. You are assuming that they want something that, that could resonate that, with them, but could also, it could not resonate with them. And then they could kind of see that as like, oh, this person just trying to make money off me. They didn't right. really want to help. I'd rather make a little bit less money at the beginning, you know, really give value then and then later on slowly grow it and grow it because your name your reputation it's social right so it can go viral it can continuously grow and if you're active on your instagram if you're actively like shooting videos if you're you know like like when we're talking right now if i'm going like this boom you know like we're talking and, and i'm sharing it on my stories mike just got a great result from like what we did pat is so excited about this and then pat re you retweet it like now i'm sharing like the story and the journey of what i'm doing which gets me more followers and what you're needing, which gets more people inquiring about that. Right. So mm. I think it's a better way to start things and then you can start slowly scaling. But 
I think with any social media platform, TikTok, Instagram, YouTube, they're all strong and they all have their own pocket of people there. You can get it started and you can work that organically until you get to a pretty good amount of revenue and then take it into, into really like media buying. I really like that. I've heard of this phrase before called work in public, where you sort of like share things as you are creating. And actually, now that I'm thinking about it, I did this a couple of times with a couple of projects. I have an invention called a switch pod. And that was like a two year process to invent something and prototype it and put it out there. But we didn't just like keep it secret and then launch it one day. We were bringing people along the ride the entire time to a point where yeah, you're right. Like when we launched it, we didn't even have to sell it anymore because it was already sold already during the entire, right? Yeah, exactly. And and so we could do the same things with our digital things. And it's it's interesting because all the things you're talking about doesn't require purchasing some, you know, new platform or, you know, all these other things that have a high friction rate. This is like, you have access to it on your phone right now to share and have conversations and, and be open. So, okay, let's let's say we do that. We share some behind the scenes. We're creating this thing. We share some success stories. A person reaches out to us and goes, hey, that's really awesome. Like, can you tell me more about that? Or, you know, how can I do something similar? Where do you take them from there? What's that conversation like? I would want to take it on the phone. I, I Let's say that someone reaches out through Instagram DM. So you take mm-hmm. it, hey, you know, what's your business? What are you doing? A few kind of like setting the the, the call up. But then I would take it to a phone call and just kind of get to know the person, see if they're a good fit too. Like I said, we we work with a lot of different companies. One thing that we never work with is dropshippers. Uh, we get on calls. And if it's if you're doing something, even if you're making like a trillion dollars, it doesn't matter. It's not a fit for us. And so you, I think you need to start with that. We could have made a ton more money in, in the powerhouse if we had accepted dropshippers, but it would mm-hmm. have hurt the community that we're trying to build over here. Because they they're known for like grabbing a product and kind of just like ripping it. So right. I don't want to have real business owners over here while these guys are essentially like potentially able to take their stuff. So you got to know like who you're talking to. It might not be a good fit speaking wise. Like we might not get along. And so I want to I want to get on the phone call. I also want to test like to see how this is working. Like hey, so this is what we're offering. This is what we're doing, and kind of like gauge the conversation as well. And again, like you could probably close this whole thing over uh, direct message, but. There's another touch point, another connection. Like, oh, I got to know Los. I, I connected with him. We vibed a little yeah. bit. It was good. And so I signed up, right? And then it also helps you on your sales skills. I think anybody in the world should have some sort of communication and sales skill. It's just, you know, talking and having EQ and talking with people. is It's just good to know. It'll help you on your writing. It'll help you in your speaking. And if you're in this kind of industry, like you're going to write and speak point blank period, right? So it's important to try to speak with as many people as possible to also get feedback. Maybe they didn't resonate with the offer. And so they might say no to me. Okay, so now I know how to make it better. It's everything I do. I always just try to figure out like, how, how fast can I get the feedback? Yeah, that's I love that approach. So if I'm going to be posting on social media, considering, okay, how easy can I get on a call with somebody from here? Right. And so I love the idea of a poll because on a poll, you can actually see who says yes or who says mm-hmm. no. Right. And then reach out to them specifically. So I love that idea. And then getting them on a call, getting people on a call, that seems kind of scary. You know, and, and, and how do you make this easier for us? What's the easiest way to make that happen? Because from creators and maybe they're more introverted and that's kind of scary to them. But even on the receiving end, it's like, oh, this person on the Internet like wants to now chat with me on the phone. And so how do you approach it so that it's actually easy on both sides? What are you using to call? Is it like your actual phone or is it some other platform? I give people my phone number. To this day, I still take sales calls too. Like I give people my phone number. I still always love taking calls randomly. It's very personal feeling, right? Yeah. I've never really 
encountered like creepy people, you know, cause you're talking to them on social too. You can, you kind of like do a little bit of a background check and stuff. Sure. Um, you can also just do zoom. I mean, if you are introverted, you can take it to text or you can keep the conversation there. It could be Facebook messenger. It could be as simple as just like staying in, in, in direct message. You know, mm -hmm. most people nowadays talk through text. Like most people don't call each other on the phone that much. So I understand yeah, kind of sure. like that hesitation. So you can just kind of keep it. Boom, boom, boom. I'm just texting you and kind of talking a little bit more and kind of getting that feedback. But I would open the door to telling people to get on more phone calls because it's, it's something that'll break the ice. It, it helps you in your communication skills. And it's, I think it's a good thing to do things you're scared of. So if you're scared of being on the phone, get on the phone. It doesn't yeah. need to make you yeah. a professional salesman, but like, just get on the phone. Like it's, it's a good idea to do things that, that make you scared. I mean, everything that I've done in business, I've been terrified of, so, but I've done it so repeatedly that now it's just, it's binary. It's ones and zeros to me. You know what yeah. I mean? Same with you. Like I'm sure when you started podcasting, you were like, well, I just, this is it. Like, this is what I'm great at. You just, you consistently, that's really business, man. I, I really think that doing uncomfortable things for a considerable amount of time and not giving up equals success. 100%. 100% less. Uh, final question here to cap off that very strategic approach to a launch, for example, is, okay, I'm on a conversation. Maybe it's through the voice messaging app in a direct message platform, or maybe it's actually on a Zoom call or something live like that. A person's interested, they want to they wanna purchase, cool. Where do we send them? Do we just go, go to the sales page? Do you send them to a checkout page? Do you invoice them? Like, how does that, if you're just starting out and you're launching like in a beta, tactically, what, what works best there? So you can do it a few different ways. You can take them to a sales page, stay on the call and make sure that they're going through it all. Ooh, nice. I like that. You could lose that sale. Like, all right, if you send them an invoice, you could lose that immediately. So I would take their credit card and be like, all right, cool, we're going to do this now. I would probably have some sort of an agreement ready or something as well. Maybe you can do some rocket lawyer or legal Zoom quickly because, you know, you're kind of being scrappy right now. Mm -hmm. hundred bucks, you'll find some sort of agreement you can you can fix up. And be like, all right, cool, I'm going to take your card. I'm going to send you this agreement. You sign it through DocuSign and we're good. You could also just take them to the sales page and just have some one click page set up like a click funnels or Sam card or something like Sam that. Card, yeah. Those are just a few, a few softwares that, that you can use, uh, but stay on the call because what you don't want to do is like, especially when you're beginning this, like, all right, cool. Well, I'll just talk to you about it later. Then I'll, I'll send you a link. <laughs> they might go away, you know? And right. like, you already kind of right. did all the uncomfortable stuff. Let's just stay on for three more minutes and be like, all right, is everything good? You set up also like make them feel comfortable. Don't just, it's because we're starting off, right? Like don't just throw something at them. Like, Hey, everything good? Okay, cool. It shows over here that you did check out. We're all good, man. Okay, so next steps. This is kind of how we're going to do this onboarding. Uh, stay tuned for this email. Okay, great. Thanks. Great talking to you. And I look I like forward that. to seeing you inside. Yeah, that's great. I mean, you're almost like a concierge yeah. in that experience. Uh, yeah, and experience, if, you're, right? if you're starting this right now, like it should feel like a concierge. You should go a little bit above and beyond because you want to build that brand. You want to build that recognition. You want to be known for like, man, that person just treated me right. You know, yeah. because all we have online is our reputation and you lose that and you're done. So good, Los. Dude, thank you so much. One more time, it's ecompowerhouse.com is where you want to go to check out Los yeah. Silva. Man, thank you so much. Where can we also connect with you on social if we want to uh, just say hi and thanks? At Los Hustle is my Insta. I'm always on that thing. Yeah. Thanks Bro, so much. This for is amazing. Me, and I appreciate it. Thank you. Appreciate you.
All right, I hope you enjoyed that episode. And notes of Paul Jarvis in this episode. Paul Jarvis, author of Company of One, uh, he was mentioned. And like I said in the beginning, maybe you needed to hear this, right? Because sometimes growth means letting go of things. Sometimes growth means not taking on more things, but actually slowing down and putting other things aside. It's very similar to what they say when you go on an airplane, right? When they do the demonstration, and you perhaps have heard this before, but you know when the mask comes down, uh, the oxygen mask, you have to put it on yourself first before you put it on others. Because if you work to try to put it on somebody else and you pass out as a result, then you are now a burden and you are not able to help others. And when you just really quickly make sure that you are okay to help others, then you can help others even more and help even more people. So let's put that mask on ourselves first really quick so that we can then take care of others. And that might mean removing some stuff so you can have more space taking care of yourself physically and mentally and hiring out and and hiring out in a smart way, not necessarily a gigantic team like Los was saying, but find those big levers that you can pull and that you can hire for, those dominoes that you can knock over that will knock over all those other dominoes for you. And you're gonna find a lot more, you know, ultimately happiness. Uh, it takes work. It's not an overnight thing, but it is totally worth it. Los having done this for over uh, two decades now, myself just for about 12 years, it is a long game. And I hope you're in it for the long game too. So everybody check out Los Silva. You can check them out at ecompowerhouse.com. And of course, we always put the show notes over on the website at smartpassiveincome.com slash session 523. Again, that's smartpassiveincome.com slash session 523. Thank you so much. I appreciate you for listening in. I appreciate all the reviews that have come in. We are closing in on the end of the year here. We got about a month and a half left. But make sure you subscribe because in the next episode, the follow-up Fridays. It's just gonna be you and me. I got a lot of mistakes that I've made personally that I wanna share with you to A, have you realize that we all make mistakes and B, hopefully avoid those mistakes that I made so you can have results even faster. So thank you so much. Till then, peace out, take care, and I'll see you in the next one. Cheers. Oh, wait, and before we go, just a big shout out to Squadcast. That's the tool that I use to conduct these interviews. And there was a technical error on one of our sides. I don't know whose fault. It was nobody's fault. It was just, you know, technical errors happen. And I lost the recording. Like, it, it just got lost. But thankfully, Squadcast had a backup. And that's why the audio quality wasn't so great. It was a cloud recording backup versus a local recording backup. I'm so thankful because it saved us a lot of time and hassle. So thank you, Squadcast. Uh, full disclosure, I am an affiliate and an advisor for Squadcast. They didn't pay me to say this or nothing. I just I just had to thank them because that um, they rescued the day there. So thank you, Squadcast. All right, that's it. Take care. Peace. Thanks for listening to the Smart Passive Income podcast at smartpassiveincome.com. I'm your host, Pat Flynn. Our senior producer is Sarah Jane Hess. Our series producer is David Grabowski. And our executive producer is Matt Gartland. Sound editing by Duncan Brown. The Smart Passive Income Podcast is a production of SPI Media. We'll catch you in the next session. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review on iTunes. 
I'm Elise Hugh. You're listening to TED Talks Daily. And today, a talk about how we see the world and what's happening in our brains when we see it. From a TED membership event, the cognitive neuroscientist Anil Seth considers the reality we experience in our brains versus the real world and how it actually is. It's followed by a Q&A session with TED's science curator, David Biello, about perceptual experience and how it collides with our very sense of self and each other. It's very cool. To learn more and become a TED member, check out ted.com slash membership. You wouldn't put your teen athlete on the same field as the pros, so why would you take them to the same doctor? Children's Healthcare of Atlanta Orthopedics and Sports Medicine is Georgia's only nationally ranked program for teen athletes. Visit today at choa.org slash teens. Support for TED Talks Daily comes from Away. Away makes the suitcase that I personally carry as well as the overnight bag that I want everybody to have. I love the compression pad that I have in my carry-on as well as the phone charger (laughs) that comes with it. That's an essential. And there's a 100-day trial on everything Away makes. Start your 100-day trial and shop the entire Away lineup of travel essentials, including those best-selling suitcases I'm talking about at awaytravel.com. That's awaytravel.com slash TED Talks. I mean, who am I? Who is anyone really? When I wake up in the morning and open my eyes, a world appears. And these days, since I've hardly been anywhere, it's a very familiar world. There's the wardrobe beyond the end of the bed, the shuttered windows, and the shrieking of seagulls, which drives Brighton residents like me absolutely crazy. But even more familiar is the experience of being a self, of being me, that glides into existence at almost the same time. Now, this experience of selfhood is so mundane that its appearance is usually just happens without us noticing at all. We take ourselves for granted, but we shouldn't. How things seem is not how they are. For most of us, most of the time, it seems as though The self, yourself, is an enduring and unified entity, an essence, a unique identity. Perhaps it seems as though the self is the recipient of wave upon wave of perceptions, as if the world just pours itself into the mind through the transparent windows of the senses. Perhaps it seems as though the self is the decision-maker-in-chief, deciding what to do next and then doing it, or, as the case may be, doing something else. We sense, we think, and we act. This is how things seem. How things are is very different. And the story of how and why this is so is what I want to give you a flavor of today. In this story, the self is not the thing that does the perceiving. The self is a perception too, or rather, it's a collection of related perceptions. Experiences of the self and of the world turn out to be kinds of controlled hallucinations, brain-based best guesses that remain tied to the world and the body in ways determined not by their accuracy, but by their utility, by their usefulness for the organism in the business of staying alive. Now, the basic idea is quite simple, and it goes back a very long way in both science and philosophy, all the way back, in fact, to Plato and to the shadows cast by firelight on the walls of a cave, shadows which the prisoners within took to be the real world. Raw sensory signals, 
the electromagnetic waves that impinge upon our retinas, the pressure waves that assault our eardrums, and so on, well, they're always ambiguous and uncertain. Although they reflect really existing things in the world, they do so only indirectly. The eyes are not transparent windows from a self out onto a world, nor are the ears, nor are any of our senses. The perceptual world that arises for us in each conscious moment, a world full of objects and people, with properties like shape and colour and position, is always and everywhere created by the brain through a process of what we can call inference, of under-the-hood, neurally-implemented, brain-based best-guessing. When I see this red coffee cup, when I consciously see it, that's because red coffee cup is my brain's best guess of the hidden and ultimately unknowable sensory signals that reach my eyes. And just think about the redness itself for a moment. Does the colour red exist in the world? No, it doesn't. And we don't need neuroscience to tell us this. Newton discovered long ago that all the colours we experience, the rainbow, the visible spectrum, are based on just a few wavelengths of electromagnetic radiation, which itself is, of course, entirely colourless. For us humans, a whole universe of colour is generated from just three of these wavelengths corresponding to the three types of cone cells in our retinas. Colour-wise, this thin slice of reality, this is where we live. Our experience of colour, indeed, our experience of anything, is both less than and more than whatever the real world really is. Now, what's happening when we experience colour is that the brain is tracking an invariance, a regularity in how surfaces reflect light, how objects and surfaces reflect light. It's making a best guess, a top-down, inside-out prediction about the causes of the relevant sensory signals and the content of that prediction. That's what we experience as red. Does this mean that red is in the brain rather than in the world? Well, no. The experience of redness requires both the world and the brain, unless you're dreaming, but let's not worry about that for now. Nothing in the brain is actually red. Cézanne, the great Impressionist painter, once said that colour is where the brain and the universe meet. Now, the upshot of all this is that perceptual experience is what I've come to call, drawing on the words of others, a controlled hallucination. Now, this is a tricky term, prone to misunderstanding, so let me be clear. What I mean is that the brain is continuously generating predictions about the causes of sensory signals, whether these come from the world or from the body. And the sensory signals themselves serve as prediction errors, reporting the difference between what the brain expects and what it gets, so that the predictions can be continuously updated. Perception isn't a process of reading out sensory signals in a bottom-up or outside-in direction. It's always an active construction, an inside-out, top-down neuronal fantasy that is yoked to reality in a never-ending dance of prediction and prediction error. Now, I call this process controlled hallucination to emphasize just this point. All of our experiences are active constructions arising from within, and there's a continuity here between normal perception and what we typically call hallucination, where, for example, people might see things or hear things that others don't. But in normal perception, the control is just as important as the hallucination. Our perceptual experiences are not arbitrary. 
the mind doesn't make up reality, while experienced colours need a mind to exist. Physical things, like the coffee cup itself, exist in the world whether we're perceiving them or not. It's the way in which these things appear in our conscious experience that is always a construction, always a creative act of brain-based best guessing. And because we all have different brains, we will each inhabit our own distinctive, personalised inner universe. Now, I've digressed quite far from where we began, so let me end by returning to the self, to the experience of being you or being me. The key idea here is that the experience of being a self, being any self, is also a controlled hallucination, but of a very special kind. Instead of being about the external world, experiences of selfhood are fundamentally about regulating and controlling the body. And what's important here is that the experiences of being a self are composed of many different parts that normally hang together in a unified way, but which can come apart in, for instance, psychological or neurological disorders. There are experiences of being a continuous person over time with a name and a set of memories shaped by our social and cultural environments. There are experiences of free will, of intending to do something or of being the cause of things that happen. There are experiences of perceiving the world from a particular perspective, a first-person point of view. And then there are deeply embodied experiences. For instance, of identifying with an object in the world that is my body, and then of emotion and mood. And at the deepest lying, most basal levels, experiences of simply being a living body, of being alive. Now, my contention is that all these aspects of being a self are all perceptual predictions of various kinds. And that the most basic aspect of being any self is that part of perception which serves to regulate the interior of the body, to keep you alive. And when you pull on this thread, many things follow. Everything that arises in consciousness is a perceptual prediction. And all of our conscious experiences, whether of the self or of the world, are all deeply rooted in our nature as living machines. We experience the world around us and ourselves within it, with, through, and because of our living bodies. So who are you, really? Think of yourself as being like the colour red. You exist, but you might not be what you think you are. Thank you. We'll stand in for the audience. David is clapping. (laughs) That makes me feel better. That's good. It was great. (laughs) Thank you for that. I have to say that the thought of my brain floating around in a bony prison is a disturbing one. But how do all those kind of billions or trillions of neurons kind of give rise to this experience of, of consciousness in your view? Well, first, I mean, consciousness is experience. So I'd, I'd use the two terms synonymously there. It's the same thing. And just by the way, I mean, the idea of your brain wobbling around in its bony vault of a skull is presumably less disturbing than it doing something else and being outside of the skull. That would be fair, an fair. even Good more worrying point. situation. Uh, but the question, of course, this is the big question. Like You start off with a, with a simple question here. How does it all happen? And you know, this is why this is, there's, a, there's a long road to go here. Um, 
And there are, I think, two ways to approach this, this mystery. So the, the fundamental question here is, what is it about a physical mechanism, in this case, a biological, neurobiological mechanism, 86 billion neurons and trillions of connections that can generate any conscious experience? Put that way, it seems extremely hard because conscious experiences seem to be the kinds of things that cannot be explained in terms of mechanisms, however complicated those mechanisms might be. This is the intuition that drives what David Chalmers famously called the hard problem. But you know, my approach, as hinted at in this talk, is that we can characterize different properties of consciousness, what a perceptual experience is like, what an experience of self is like, what the difference between sleep and wakefulness is like. And in each of those cases, we can tell a story about how neural mechanisms explain those properties. Uh, in the part of the story we've, we've touched on today, it's all about predictive processing. So the idea is the brain really does encode within it a sort of predictive generative model of the causes of signals from the world. And it's the content of those predictions that constitutes our, our perceptual experience. And as we sort of develop and test explanations like this, the intuition is that this hard problem of how and why neurons or whatever it is in the brain can generate a conscious experience won't be solved directly. It will be dissolved. It will gradually fade away and eventually vanish in a puff of metaphysical smoke. Katerina uh, wants to talk about anesthesia, that kind of mm. uh, experience of uh, having your consciousness kind of turned off. What do we know about this ability to switch a person off in kind of a matter of seconds? What, what is actually happening there, do you think? Well, I mean, firstly, I think it's one of the best inventions of, of humanity ever, right? The ability to turn people into objects and then back again into people is just like, I, I wouldn't want to live at a time in history without it. Whenever we have this sort of like, wouldn't it be nice to live in, I don't know, Greek antiquity or something when people swan around philosophizing, drinking wine? Well, yes, but what about anesthesia? <laughs> That's always my response to that. So it does work. This is a fantastic thing. How well, here's an, uh, just an enormous opportunity for consciousness science because we know what anesthetics do at a very local level. You know, we know how they act on different molecules and receptors in the brain. And of course, we know what ultimately happens, which is that people get knocked out. And by the way, it's not like going to sleep. When you're under general anesthesia, you're really not there. It's an oblivion comparable with the oblivion before or after, before birth or after death. Um, so the real question is, what is happening? How are the anesthetics, the local action of anesthetics, affecting global brain dynamics so as to explain this disappearance of consciousness? And to cut a long story very short, uh, what seems to be happening is that the different parts of the brain become functionally disconnected from each other. And by that, I mean, they speak to each other less. The brain is still active but communication between brain areas is, becomes disrupted in specific ways. And there's still a lot we need to learn about the precise ways in which this disconnection happens. Uh, what are the signatures of the, of the loss of consciousness? You know, there are many different kinds of anesthetic, but whichever variety of anesthetic you take, when it works, this is what you see. I think some, some folks are troubled by this uh, idea that what we, or what I call red, might be a different color uh, for you and for, for everyone else? Is there a way of knowing if we're all uh, kind of hallucinating reality in a, in a similar way or, or not? 
this is, again, this is a lovely topic. And it, it really gets to the heart of how I've been thinking about perception. Because one of the aspects of perception that I think is easy to overlook is that the contents of perception seem real, right? The redness of this coffee cup, it seems to be a mind-independent, really existing property of the external world. Now, certain aspects of this coffee cup are mind-independent. Its solidity is mind-independent. If I throw it at you, David, across the Atlantic and you don't, you don't see it coming, it will hurt. It will hit you in the head. It will hurt. That doesn't depend on you seeing it. But the redness you know, does depend on, on a mind. Um, and to the extent that things depend on a mind, they're going to be different for each of us. Now, they may not be that different. So the, there's this in philosophy, there's this argument of the inverted spectra. So, you know, if I see red, is that the same as you seeing green or blue, let's say? And we might never know. I don't have that much truck with that particular uh, thought experiment. Like many thought experiments, it's a bit, you know, pushes things a little bit too far. I think the reality is that we see things like colors. Maybe we see them similar, but not exactly uh, the same. And we probably overestimate the degree of similarity between our perceptual worlds because they're all filtered through language. I mean, I just use the word red. I mean, there are many shades of red. Painter will say, well, I mean, yeah, what red? I mean, remember when I was decorating my house, it's like, I want to paint the walls white. It's like, how many shades of white are there? <laughs> this is too many. Um, and they will have weird names, which doesn't help. So we, we will overestimate the similarity of our universe. And I think it's a really interesting question how much they do indeed diverge. You will probably remember this famous dress, this photo of a dress that half the world saw as blue and black and the other half saw as white and gold. You're a white and gold person. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah blue and black person. I was right. The real dress is actually blue and black. Um, yeah, that's, we we that's could argue a, about that. We couldn't. It really is blue and black. I, you know, I talked to the dress designer. The actual one is, is blue and black. There's no argument there. Um, but the thing that made that so weird is that it's not just that we, we sort of vaguely see it as one color or the other. We really see it as that blueness and blackness or whiteness and goldness as really existing in the world. And that was an interesting lever into a recognition of how different our perceptual universes might be. And in fact, a study we're doing at Sussex over the next year or two, we're trying to characterize uh, the amount of perceptual diversity that that is just there to be discovered. We're usually only aware of it at the extremes. People call things like uh, neurodiversity, where people have experiences that are so different that they manifest in different behaviors. But I think there's this sort of big dark matter of, of individual diversity and in perception that we know very little about, but it's there. Well, I'm glad we could put to rest a major internet debate uh, uh, and, and come down firmly on the blue and blacks uh, side of things, I guess. Uh, Daniela wants to know, could you explain how kind of memory is involved in this uh, perception of a self? Well, just as there are many different aspects of selfhood, there are many different kinds of memory too. I think colloquially in everyday language, when we talk about memory, we often talk about autobiographical memory, episodic memory, like what did I have for breakfast? When did I last go for a walk? These, these kinds of things. When did I last have the pleasure of talking to David? Um, these, are, these are memories of things that, that pertain to me as a continuous individual uh, over time. So that's one way in which memory plays into self. And that part of memory can 
go away and self remain back to the earlier point that there's a famous case I talk about it in the book of a guy called Clive Waring who had a a brain disease and encephalopathy which basically obliterated his ability to lay down new autobiographical memories um he lost his hippocampus which is a brain region very important for for this function and so his wife described it as him living in the in a permanent present tense of between 7 to 30 seconds and then everything was new it's very very difficult to put yourself in the shoes of somebody like that but other aspects of his self uh remained but then there are you know there are all sorts of other aspects of memory that that probably also play into what it is to be you or to be me I and mean, we we have um we have semantic memory we just know things like we know what the capital of france is we know um who the president is and i hope so i don't know um sometimes that's a good thing sometimes that's not a good thing and all of these these things that get encoded in memory shape ourselves too and then finally there's there's perceptual memory it's not that experience is like a a video recording that we can replay but everything we experience changes the way we perceive things in the future and the way we perceive things is also in my view part of what it is to be a self I actually just want to say one of the really interesting questions here uh, and one of the things we're working on is given that we basically we go imagine a typical day you go through your typical day um you're experiencing a continuous stream of inputs now you blink of course and so on but but more or less there's this continuous stream of inputs yet when we remember a day it's usually in chunks yeah these autobiographical chunks i did this i did that i did the other this happened so a really important question is how does this chunking process happen how does the brain extract meaningful episodes from a relatively continuous flow of of data and it's you know it's kind of disturbing how little of any given day we we remember um so it's it's a very selective process and that's something that that I think is going to be useful not only for basic neuroscience but for instance in helping people with with memory loss and, and impairments because you could for instance have a camera and then you could predict what aspect of their day would constitute a memory and that can be very very useful for them and for their carers yeah the brain clearly has a good editor you call us people uh feeling machines in your book care to uh care to expand on that yeah that's right well we're not yeah i think the yeah we're not cognitive computers we are feeling machines and i i think this is this is true at the level of of making decisions but for me it's really at the heart of of uh of how to understand life mind and and consciousness and you know, this really is the idea that uh you know in consciousness science we we tended to think look at things like vision to start with as being the royal road to understanding consciousness vision is easy to study and we're very visual creatures but fundamentally brains evolve and develop and operate from moment to moment to keep the body alive you know, always in light of this deep physiological imperative to uh, help the organism persist in remaining an organism and in remaining alive and you know that fundamental role of brains that that's what in my view gave rise to any kind of perception in order to regulate something you need to be able to predict what happens to it so this whole apparatus of prediction and prediction error that undergirds all of our perceptual experiences including the self has its origin in this this role that's tightly coupled to the physiology of the body 
And that's why I think we're, we're feeling machines. We're not just computers that happen to be implemented on meat machines. Thank you, Anil, for chatting with us today. Really enjoyed it. Thanks a lot, David. Thank you. Grand Canyon University is an affordable, private, Christian university located in Phoenix, Arizona. GCU's ranked top 20 for best college campuses in America and offers 275 academic programs with over 240 online. GCU has not increased campus tuition since 2009 and delivered over $290 million in scholarships to online and traditional campus students in 2020 alone. Find your purpose at GCU. Visit gcu.edu slash myoffer to see what scholarships you qualify for. Support for TED Talks Daily comes from Capital One. Ready for a new ride but not sure where to start? Meet the tool that makes car shopping and financing easier. With Capital One Auto Navigator, you can find a car and get pre-qualified instantly. You'll get your real rate and monthly payment without even impacting your credit score. It's so simple, you might feel like you're taking the easy way out. That's because you are. Capital One, what's in your wallet? Terms and conditions apply. Find out more at CapitalOne.com slash Auto Navigator. Please follow us on Facebook and subscribe via iTunes. When you run a business, setbacks change everything, and online, they happen fast. With reliable internet from Comcast Business, you can stay ahead, and now it comes with Security Edge to make it even more secure. Security Edge helps keep your network safe with scans every 10 minutes. And unlike some cybersecurity options, it helps protect every device that's connected. Because when your information, your people, and your company have Security Edge, you can be ready for what's next. Comcast Business. Powering possibilities. Restrictions apply. Security Edge requires Comcast Business Internet. The Bible says, be not deceived. Whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. All right, it's 4 p.m. on Wall Street. Do you know where your money is? Welcome to Financial Issues, where we align reality with truth. Conservative talk radio you can count on. Financial issues that you need to know. We'll preserve for our children this, the last best hope of man on earth, or we'll sentence them to take the last step into a thousand years of darkness. We will simply apply to government the common sense that we all use in our daily lives. Now, here's your host, Dan Celia. Good morning. Welcome back to Financial Issues. I'm Dan Celia. It's great to be here. Uh, we've got some uh, economic news we've got to go over, some pretty important economic news, so we'll talk about that. Right now, all the indices in negative territory. Why? Primarily because we just hit a 30 year high, actually more than 30 years, goes back to just beyond 1990 before we've had inflation at this pace for a very long time. Consumer price index came in. They were expecting it to come in at six-tenths of 1%. It came in at nine-tenths of 1%. As a matter of fact, core inflation, which was expected to come in at four-tenths, came in at six-tenths. 
Maybe that's what they meant. No, it was consumer price index. was supposed to be six. Came in at nine, almost one full percent. That is astounding, but not surprising. It is surprising to some, unfortunately. Um, We knew this was coming. We saw this coming some time ago. We talked about it at great length. I even talked about it yesterday. My concern is inflation. It is coming. There is no stopping it, and it can't be, it can't be stopped. We can't have uh, a lot of money chasing fewer goods without inflation. That doesn't work. It is impossible. Can't be done. And some of the lack of supply is self-inflicted. Oil being one of them. I'll talk about that in a minute. But U.S. inflation, again, hits a three-decade high. That is pretty amazing. This according to the Labor Department. And I would question how accurate the number is. I would think, I wouldn't be surprised if it's higher. We'll never know. But nonetheless, uh, this is uh, extremely, this, listen, <laughs> This is a hot button, right? This is exactly what is concerning the administration, the Biden administration. Well, guess what? That concern is pretty much out the door because it's somewhat irrelevant. We are going to see these supplies almost no matter what the supply um, uh, concerns. They're not getting any better. They're not going to get any better. 80 thousand truck drivers short that is a huge problem and again i talked about self-inflicted oil prices continue to rise president biden in somewhat of a dilemma i i don't know i mean it's a dilemma that is self-inflicted because of his kowtowing to the left His administration's ambitious agenda on global warming calls for a shift away from, I'm I'm going to add a word here called American, uh, away from American fossil fuels. But at the very same time, Biden is begging, literally begging, OPEC and Russia for more output. OPEC has rebuffed those appeals, probably laughing at O'Biden on his knees begging for more oil. Gasoline heating oil prices go to the highest level since 2014. Americans everywhere continue to express an uneasy feeling about all of this and an uneasy feeling over the administration's handling of our economic policies. It is likely that next year's midterms will show that. Speaking of next year midterms, there are 13 Republicans that you all need to be working hard to raise up Someone in the primaries. Don't worry about money. It just needs to be somebody with some energy to knock on a lot of doors. 
because along with all the Democrats that go, let's get rid of the traitor Republicans. I would add into that McCarthy, who will likely, when Republicans win next November, that will likely be, and let's hope this is not the case, the Speaker of the House. He needs to be run out as well because he doesn't have or possess the abilities to be able to create any kind of unity in the Republican Party. This would have never happened in the Democratic Party under Pelosi. He doesn't and shouldn't be the Speaker of the House. I'm not a fan of his. He was very quick to turn on Trump after the last election. And he's got, couldn't get 13 Republicans. Doesn't matter. Even without the 13, they would have won the vote. But these 13, let's not allow them in Nebraska and Pennsylvania and New York and California. These, they don't need to get reelected. And you shouldn't reelect them any more than you should reelect a Democrat. We need to raise up someone now in these states to represent you in the primary elections in the spring so that we can still get the Republican in there, but maybe somebody that cares about America. How about a, a Republican that cares about conservative values and America? Not these guys that are going to dupe you into thinking that they do. And that goes for McCarthy, too. He needs to get voted out. And if he doesn't, then let's hope that there are enough Republicans that are sensible that will make sure he's not the Speaker of the House. Anyway, he shouldn't be, he shouldn't be the Speaker of the House. He can't even get 13 Republicans aligned with all the rest of the Republicans when America is depending on it. So Americans have a real problem. Biden is begging OPEC for more oil. Here's the solution, Joe. It's really, really easy. The solution lies in supporting American energy producers. Boy, I can't do that. I don't care about the carbon. I'm just lying about that, but it can't come from America. So you're going to beg our enemy of Russia and OPEC, not necessarily our enemy, but I don't call them our friend or pretend friends, to support America because you can't bring yourself to going to American corporations helping our economy, create jobs. You just can't bring yourself to doing it. It's sad. This is an easy solution. So on one hand, you've got an administration that knows they're gone, that knows they're never going to make another term, that is going to lose control of the House of Representatives in the midterms, probably to the tune of 50 representatives. It's going to be devastating for many years to come but they don't care because they've got to appeal to the minority of people 
and the minority of the Democratic Party that is kowtowing to the far left. It's insanity. In the meantime, I guess we'll just stick by with this runaway inflation. I mean, that's the only thing you can call it since we have to go back to the 19, uh, beyond the 1990s, 1980, to find its time when it ran up this fast. It's a problem, a severe problem. We'll be right back. Welcome back, Financial Issues. So yesterday, we got the NFIB confidence number out. This is the Small Business Sentiment or Optimism Index. It decreased once again for the month of October. We're seeing a trend here that's disturbing. It was down by almost 1% to 98.2. Now, one of the 10 indexes, so they have 10 different components that they ask people to rate and comment on, small business owners. This isn't a survey of 200 people. This is a survey of 2,000 or more. They put it out to all their members, which is tens, ten, over 10,000. They put it out to all their members, and they usually get two or 3,000 that respond. And that's what it's based on. So this is a very, very good indication of where the optimism is, and right now it's pessimism where the pessimism is, and right now the pessimism is lower than it was last month. That's not good. One of the index components improved. There's 10 of them altogether. Seven of them declined, and two were unchanged. So the biggest problem for small business right now seems to be the lack of workers. So that is their biggest problem is the lack of workers, unfilled positions that remain, and inventory shortages. They have inventory shortages. Obviously, everybody does, hence all the the, uh, tankers sitting offshore. So that's their biggest problem. And this is coming up on the holiday season. 49% of owners reported job openings that cannot or could not be filled. That's a decrease of two points from September. A net 44% of owners reported rising compensation. That's a 48-year high. That is a 48-year record high. A net 32% plan on raising compensation over the next three months. All this why Biden is begging OPEC. Now, the NFIB itself has filed lawsuit, a lawsuit, this happened yesterday, against the Biden administration, emergency temporary standard for a mandate for the shot with 100 employees uh, required. They filed a lawsuit over this, saying this is going to create 
huge problems, more inflation, no job hirings, and a greater slowdown in the economy, my words, that can't be imagined. That's my words that can't be imagined. So uh, this is a huge, huge problem, and they filed a lawsuit against the Biden administration. Speaking of lawsuits, speaking of the shot, speaking of COVID, the lawsuits have started. I know of four. One is a doctor that is actually suing the hospital or the system, the healthcare system that he works because he's tired of seeing people uh, die because they are not allowed to treat patients. This is only the beginning because unfortunately there are going to be a lot of doctors being sued and get caught up in those lawsuits for refusing. The doctors then are going to have to countersue the hospital system that is not allowing them to give or take full responsibility for allowing people to die. Now, that'll be the choice of the doctors. One has to believe that the doctors are not going to choose to take on the lawsuits. They are going to shift the blame, as they should, very quickly on the healthcare system. But this one particular doctor refuses to follow through. And he is suing the Centraria Healthcare System in Norfolk, Virginia. This is going to have a lot of wrongful deaths that the hospital is going to be sued over. You know the people that have the families of those people that died in that system will going to, are going to be jumping on another lawsuit. This is going, you remember me saying months ago, if I had a son in college, I'd probably say you might as well go into law because you're going to make a lot of money because these lawsuits are going to last for a very, very long time. And guess what? We're not even beginning to see. I didn't even expect them to start this soon, but they are starting this soon. There's going to be a whole nother level of lawsuits that are going to be against, uh, unfortunately, these doctors. And again, that's going to generate another level of lawsuits for those doctors against the healthcare system. The healthcare system is going to have to sue the government, I suspect. I don't know where else they can turn. I don't know how they have a leg to stand on since they were the ones that were complicit in just following the marching orders of the government and mandating that on their doctors. I think hospitals are going to close down and shut down and are going to go bankrupt all over the country, as they should. The news of these lawsuits needs to start to spread across the country as quickly as possible because that's what it's going to take for these doctors to stand up. This one doctor in Norfolk, Virginia, can't be by himself. There's got to be other doctors that have the same convictions he does as I came into medicine to save lives. We have life-saving drugs that could have been administered and they refuse to give it. Somebody's got to stand up and the doctors had better start standing up so that when the lawsuit hits them, they can say, hey, I'm trying to stand up here. Maybe they'll get some mercy from the jury. 
But I can tell you, good luck with that. Because if they go to trial and they go to jury, there is not a leg to stand on to most of the jury members that doctors and hospitals are going to have. Well, wait a minute. The, The government says we can't sue. No, the government gave some exemptions to pharmaceutical companies. But there will be more whistleblowers and a whistleblower now saying that the uh, the Pfizer ignored data and rewrote some of the data. That's going to lose all their protect, protection is going to be out the door once that comes out. So they will be sued. It is going to be crazy. But let me throw out a theory. This very thing is going to be the key to the government beginning socialized medicine. Why? Because who do you think is going to come to the rescue of the bankrupt hospitals so that people can be cared for. Who do you think it's going to be? It's going to be the government. The government is going to step in and say, we now own the hospital. We will run the hospital. We will make decisions on treatment. We will provide a hospital for the community. And socialized medicine will begin. That's how it's going to play out. What do we do about it? We do what Virginia did because they didn't want the propaganda machine of teachers unions in Virginia telling them how to raise their children telling them what is good for their children to hear and what is bad for their children to hear. The people stood up. They not only stood up, they rose up. The Democrats have learned nothing from that, nor will they. That's a good thing. We hope they don't. What's going to change is a temporary stay of execution, which can only happen through a do-nothing Congress, a Congress that is controlled by conservatives that won't give Biden anything he wants. That means that nothing will get done in Congress for two years. That is a good thing. I railed against it during the Obama administration. That is a good thing now. So everything he does will have to be done by executive order, which won't hold much weight and will be gone after the, in two years after the presidential election. The limit, there will be limits to the damage they can do. Then the Republicans need to spend the two years 
that they do nothing. They're not going to be worried about legislation because there's not going to be any legislation that is going to be put forth that they're going to want to pass other than Republican legislation that they'll easily be able to get through, but the president will veto. So there will be this doing nothing. I have an idea. I got something you can do. You can do impeachment proceeding and press charges and file legal cases against people in the Department of Justice, people in the FBI, people in the administration, and the president himself. How about you start to fight for America? I know that is a little bit out of the box for all of them, and I doubt seriously that they will do it. But they have two years to show some backbone. And maybe if they show some backbone, they'll get reelected. But hopefully, the American people will spend two years raising up opponents to run against these Republicans that don't have any backbone. In the primaries, getting ready for the general election. That will be our job to do. There is plenty of work we can do. We got to have the will to do it. We got a desire to do it. We got to have the persistence to do it. The stick to itiveness to do it. Got to start now. Hey, we got Twyla Braze coming up. Stay with us. We'll be back. Welcome back, Financial Issues. I'm Dan Siri. It is great to be here. Um, we've got Twyla Braze with us, cchfreedom.org, cchfreedom.org. All of you know Twyla. We had Twyla on uh, not long ago, but I needed to get her back. We have so much information to try to cover of what's going on. And uh, I just want to say how important it is that um, we have got in our corner an amazing advocate in cchfreedom.org. And Twyla, president and co-founder of cchfreedom.org, um, is, is, that, is the head of that um, advocacy that is uh, fighting for all of us. And we need to make sure we can't, we can't lose Twyla. We need to keep Twyla going. Uh, I'm talking about her ministry and her work. And she has a $20,000 match right now. And uh, I think that we can probably finish it off today. Uh, but we've got to go to cchfreedom.org. With unlimited free delivery, a Walmart Plus membership helps with whatever life throws your way. And the holidays throw a lot. Like when you make a gift list, check it twice, but still forget someone. Or when you plan a dinner for four, but 14 show up. Or when you turn away for two seconds and your dog eats the turkey. Bad boy, Dino! Walmart Plus saves the holidays with unlimited free delivery on fresh groceries and more at everyday low prices. Start your free trial membership at walmartplus.com. $35 order minimum. Restrictions apply. See membership details. This podcast is supported by Comcast Business. Comcast Business Internet now comes with Security Edge to help protect every device on your network, so you can be ready for what's next. Comcast Business, powering possibilities. And give so that we can um, take care of that match uh, for her and get this, uh, keep this ministry strong. I can't even begin to tell you how many of you have told me over the years how much they love Twyla. 
thousands and thousands and thousands of people over the years. Well, we've got to support the organization as she is fighting for, for us. So cchfreedom.org, and I hope, I hope that you will do that now. cchfreedom.org. Make sure you go click on that donate and um, I don't, it doesn't look or whatever the Lord lays on your heart, $10, uh, $1,000, $100, $50, whatever it is, every little bit is going to get doubled and it's going to help. So I hope you'll do it. Twyla, welcome. Thank you for being with us and so much going on and apparently, um, uh, Joe Joe Biden or the Biden administration is um, going uh, typically off the reservation. Well, not off the reservation because he's on the wrong reservation to begin with. But he is he is going uh, on this vaccine. He doesn't care what the um, you know the federal court of appeals in the Fifth Circuit is saying. Right. So I consider him going rogue. It's just like, you know, he's president uh, and that has certain constitutional limits. It has certain constitutional requirements, um, but he has just decided to ignore what the judge has said. He's told his people just move forward with this mandate and all the businesses that have, you know, 100 employees or more uh, move forward. We don't care what the judge says. And so, you know, that's really going rogue. That's just deciding he's king and he's not. And so it's a very good thing to see all the different states that have already filed lawsuits and piled on and uh, small businesses and uh, all sorts of people who are piling on against uh, Biden. But there are also um, people who are piling on against their employer. So, for instance, I was just listening to a press conference of flight crew Uh, And they didn't say which airline that they were from, but they're suing because of being forced into the mandate. And one of the people talking was a a flight attendant who is vaccine injured now as a result. But the lawsuit also is about putting them on essentially permanent leave without pay and, and not allowing them to go get another job. And so... Uh, a combination between the mandate and about, you know, essentially, you know, imprisoning them in a job without pay. Uh, And so it's good to see the lawsuits happening because this can't go on. This can't ever become part of our system in America of how, how we are. This is not how we are. This is not what we do. And we don't have presidents who just decide to, you know, do whatever they want to do. And worse yet, we've got mayors doing the same, the same thing, You, you know, De Blasio, you know, um, just, you know, the the commercials and what they're doing to force, you know, uh, to try to encourage five to 11 year olds. I mean, he's talking about showing a proof of vaccination to go into a business for a five year old. Right. And I think I think, um, you know, that's all about pressuring the parents, because where are you going to take your children when you go in to get groceries, when you go into the doctor's office, whatever, right? It's all about pressuring the parents to get themselves vaccinated, to get their children vaccinated. You know, it's all different pressure points that these people are figuring out what they can do to force everybody to take an injection or something that could harm them and is completely experimental. And, you know, I just wanted to add here that in case anybody thinks that the vaccine has been approved, the only one that's been approved, which is another word for licensed, 
is Komernati. And I heard an, uh, somebody talk about this who knows a lot uh, more about the inner workings than I do. And the fact of the matter is, while Comirnaty has been approved, Pfizer is not letting it be sold. And the reason Pfizer is not letting it be sold is because although it is now licensed, it is not part of the children's vaccination program. And it is not part of the emergency use authorization. And under emergency use authorization, they are, they are shielded from litigation. And under the children's vaccination program, they are shielded from litigation. But if they they are just out here on their own. They are not. And so they are not selling the only one that has been approved and licensed by the FDA. I just think that's a very interesting point. They don't want they don't want to be uh, responsible for damages done by this uh, this injection. And since you mentioned the shielding, let me just remind everybody that it doesn't shield hospitals or doctors from lawsuits. It shields the pharmaceutical companies. And I was so, uh, I'm seeing more and more lawsuits come about from doctors and from individuals to doctors and hospitals for wrongful death and other things. And there is one from a doctor, Dr. Paul Merrick out of, out of uh, uh, Norfolk, Virginia, uh, suing the, the healthcare system that I guess he worked for. I'm sure he doesn't now but worked for, for allow, for not allowing life-saving drugs. Yeah, so he's one of the top ICU doctors in the world. He's a professor, and, um, and he is also the co-founder of the Frontline COVID-19 Critical Care Alliance. And so just yesterday, uh, he filed suit because his uh, employer came and basically sent him a letter and said, you know, you can't do what you're doing now with these drugs like ivermectin. Um, I don't know all the lists, but but those it's, it's the protocol that the FLCCC has come up with that saves patients that are hospitalized. And he's essentially been shut down from doing that. And again, he's an ICU doctor. And this protocol has saved about 50% of the ICU patients. And so now he is suing them. And this is the right thing to do. This really should be happening all over the country, is that doctors should be suing anybody who tries to tie their hand against saving the lives of patients. And so I I do think this is very exciting um, that this is happening because this should be moving forward immediately to stop this so that patients' lives can be saved. And I don't know if you have heard of the doctor. I'm trying to think of her last name. But but she is the owner of BreatheMD.com, BreatheMD.com. And she has decided um, that she is only going to take care – she's only going to accept new patients that are unvaccinated – And part of the reason for that is she has realized what the unvaccinated are dealing with. And she herself has taken a case to court of a patient who is in the ICU. The hospital is refusing to let her give him ivermectin in hopes of bringing him out of his intubated state. And the court has told them they must do so, but they are making her go through an entire set of hoops to even get her privileges back at the hospital for her to deliver the medication. And meanwhile, the patient, the patient waits, the patient who could live. I mean, you know, it's like you can't make this up. You also can't believe it. You can't believe it, it, but it's absolutely true. It's absolutely happening. And it's this is America. And that's what I've 
struggle with so much that this is happening here in America. But I'll tell you, I am extremely encouraged about the lawsuits. I said to Matt Staver from Liberty Council not too long ago, I don't know, a month or so ago, I said, you know, the only thing that's going to stop all this, Matt, is massive lawsuits. It's the only way to stop it. It's the only thing that the medical, uh, that the hospitals are going to understand. And, you know, um, I was talking to very much an insider in Washington, D.C., and we're talking about, yeah, the, the lawsuits are going to shut down hospitals. The shutting down of hospitals is going to cause the government to come to the rescue, and it's going to usher in the socialized medicine because they're not going to have any choice. The, hospi- the, the, the government's going to own these hospitals and be taking care of people. Things, are, things could get worse. I don't think they'll get worse. I think they'll probably get better as a result of these lawsuits. And I just, I, I just find, in, in my opinion, doctors better get ready because they are going to be sued as individual from individuals, and they then are going to have to turn uh, that lawsuit back to the hospital and sue the hospital for not allowing them to do what they're supposed to do. I feel like this is a perfect time for me to mention the wedge of health freedom again. And for any of your listeners that are thinking about, well, should we donate to CCHF or Twyla's work or whatever, right? Um, We really want to use this as an opportunity to build a new system of health freedom. And we in 2022 are going to strive to maybe double the number of doctors, maybe even triple if we could get there. At the end of the day, we want wedge hospitals, we want wedge clinics, we want wedge laboratories and all of them free free from government controls, all of them cash-based and affordable. We want you to have real insurance that'll pay you, then you can pay them. All of these third parties, all of these controllers out of the way. And and we're really serious about it. So we have the Wedge of Health Freedom with about 500 doctors now. It's time to make it huge. So it is uh, the Max is a, is a green button. That's what they can press. Uh, let me carry over uh, here, uh, Twyla, and just uh, mention a couple other things. Folks, we're talking to Twyla Brace, cchfreedom.org. By the way, Twyla has a tumor right now. She might not really feel, she's, she's like me, she doesn't want to talk about it, but I'm talking about it. The opinions and recommendations expressed by Dan are his own and do not necessarily represent the opinions of this station or any of the show's sponsors. Financial Issues, I'm Dan Syria talking to Twyla Brace, cc, cchfreedom.org, cchfreedom.org, and you can go now. There's a uh, button on the website. It's a green button. It says match on it. You can take advantage of the match now and, and give whatever you can. We need to keep things uh, going and keep that organization strong. They are advocates for you and I, it's so, so important. You know, um, the, the wage, uh, system, uh, we have used it. Yvonne and I have used it. We don't have our new wage doctor yet here in Florida, but we, we will, uh, hopefully we won't, it'll be somewhere nearby and we need to see that grow. And for Christians, that in combination with Samaritan ministries is an amazing, uh, is an amazing work, and so we really need we really need to be looking into these things. Um, the wage, and you can go to our website and and get information and find wage doctors in your area, um, right there on the website. Um, 
there's some talk going on, uh, Twyla, about um, natural immunity. But before I get to that, you had mentioned earlier about the early treatment kit. And I want people to know where they have to go. Uh, Yvonne and I have both ivermectin and uh, hydroxychloroquine. We have uh, uh, doses for her, for me, and extra uh, dosages because some of them were refillable and we refilled them. We don't use it prophylactically, but I know that many people do. But um, I was had some kind of weird thing on Sunday where I could not stop uh, coughing. It was a really in a, in a really rough way. We don't, I don't know why. I had a little low grade fever, and you know I'm. Uh, I had my ivermectin just waiting, you know, waiting to uh, start taking it. I didn't. Uh, and, you know, Monday I was fine. I did take some uh, hydroxychloroquine but and, and are taking it here for the rest of the week. But um, anyway, it is, it is important. It doesn't, don't, you, you need to have it. I have a good, good friend whose mother and father both have covid and they can't get any treatment whatsoever. And, you know, you need to have these drugs on hand uh, so that, you know, it's just where we are today. It's sad, but it's where we are today. And you need to have these drugs on hand. And you can go to uh, the website at uh, CCH Freedom. That's where we went. And um, we went through the interview and, um, you know, there is a fee and you pay the fee. It's not, uh, overly expensive and well worth it. And you can get the prescriptions. You can get the medications that you need. So, uh, you need to do that. Twyla, what, um, are we seeing a rise in people, uh, going for, you know, the early intervention with some of these drugs and going to the website? Have you noticed a, uh, an increase? So I think what I have, you know, what is uh, difficult for me is I think people are like, they really, they either they don't think they're going to get COVID or they don't believe in ivermectin. Uh, they don't believe in early treatment. They, they, they still believe everything will be taken care of for them as they, uh, as it has always been, you know, the best that could be done. Right. And so, um, we definitely uh, do see people, people are going to, I'll just say very clearly, early treatment options, earlytreatmentoptions.org. And there's a list of physicians that are all over the country. Um, and you just have to look and find a list that works for you. There's also a list of pharmacies. And what's really important, this early treatment kit, um, is if you just understand that once you get your first COVID symptom, you have seven days to really um, to really start the treatment because there is there's several studies that show if you get early treatment within the first seven days, it's virtually no deaths. But if you get if you start on day eight, there are deaths, there are hospitalizations. What what people don't understand about ivermectin, for instance, according to Dr. Pierre Corey, is that it essentially covers the spikes. So you know what it, you know what the virus looks like. It's a ball. It's got spikes all over it, and those spikes are used to attach to your cells, and it attaches to a receptor on your cells, 
And then what happens is the spike is essentially a syringe and the spike injects the cell with the RNA of making the virus. And so it starts to replicate using your own cells. But if it cannot attach to your cell because it is coated by ivermectin, then it just sits there and goes, huh, and then it dies. And replication only lasts for five to seven days, and then the virus starts to die. And that five to seven days is when you've got to get the treatment going because, because uh, that replication is rapidly happening. The sooner you get it uh, done, the better. The first day would be great, right? But right, if, you right. want, if you want to wait uh, because you're trying to get ivermectin and you're finding the only source you can get it is India, you're talking about two to three weeks and you don't have that time. So this is like a cheap insurance policy for your life. You know, find a pharmacy. There are some great Indian pharmacies. I talked to Dr. Pierre Corey. I said, what do you think about, you know, counterfeit ivermectin? And, uh, and he was saying they'd had really great response uh, in India. And so there are some, there, there's a whole list of them. They, the organization that he's part of, we have the link there, the FLCCC, that's a frontline COVID-19 chronic care, uh, chronic care alliance, I think. No, it's not chronic, acute care. I can't remember. Critical care. There we go. Um, anyway, so they've got the doctors and they've got the pharmacists and we have the links directly to those. So at earlytreatmentoptions.org, get your kit. But your kit should not be just for you. It should be for your family. Buy extra. If you can get a thousand pills in India. They're 12 milligram pills. In the United States, you can only get three milligram pills. So you can get like so much more for so much less and then have it on hand for friends and family. It's really important because people aren't getting the message and you're listening to it right now. You are hearing the message so you can protect so many people if you get extra and have it on hand because it's really not that expensive from India. It's like in the, you know, it's like about $200 or something for a thousand 12 milligram pills. You know, in the United States, it might be $400 for, I don't know, 50 or maybe 103 milligram pills. So, you know, act now. I just, I can't say it strongly enough. The number of lives that could be saved and then keep, keep people out of the hospital. And uh, I just got another uh, hint from a physician of something that another physician did to save her own brother's life. And that was to put them into a hyperbaric chamber when the oxygen level dropped for like 90 minutes. So there are things that can be done. The hospital is a terrible place to go. You've already heard the stories about how the hospitals are not letting doctors save lives. Do whatever you can to get the ivermectin to, to like go to one of these uh, links. Talk to a doctor. A new one is ivermectincan.com, and we have that at earlytreatmentoptions.org. There are a variety of places that you can go to, but the time is now. It really is now. <laughs> I, I don't know how to say it more strongly. Get your kit. It's so important. And to have, I think to have more than you need, like, uh, like we do, you know, to help other people, I think it's critically important and it's so easy. It's so easy to do. It could be the best investment you've ever made in your life. Uh, and, uh, to save your life or someone else's life. And it is so, so important. Uh, one thing that, you know, you have to be committed to, and you have to be committed to staying out of the hospital. You just do. And you have to be committed to that. And you, you want to be committed knowing that you have a treatment that uh, has proven to be effective. 
So it is so important that we do that. Um, also, think, Dan, go, can go I ahead. just, can I just yep. add about hospitals? So just as a really concrete story for your listeners, sure. I know somebody who was in the hospital at about 88 to 89% and was not on oxygen yet. And I really wanted to like break him out of the hospital. Well, the hospital decided to let him go with oxygen tank. And that's great because then he was able to get ivermectin which the hospital wasn't willing to give him, and he is improving. But I also heard about another person who at 89% in the hospital, they intubated him. And, you know, 85 to 90% of people never make it through the intubator. And so there you've got two stories, right, where one is improving because they got out of the hospital and got the ivermectin, and they got out with oxygen, which was a good thing. They didn't really have to use it a whole lot. And the other one who didn't even know that that was a possibility and then they intubated them and they really should have, they, they, you know, they should have given them ivermectin. We don't know for sure that it would have cured, but the, the likelihood is huge. Both Dr. Harvey Reich from Yale and Dr. Peter McCullough uh, down in Texas have mm -hmm. said that 80 to 85% of the deaths could have been prevented by early treatment. So really concrete example, you know, do what you can to be treated early so you never have to grace the doors of the hospital. Mm, amen. amen. Yeah, yeah, so true. Twyla, we appreciate you so much, folks, and I know you do too. Um, folks, I know you appreciate Twyla and CCH Freedom. So many of you get the newsletter that she puts out, and you can sign up for that when you go to the website to make your donation. And she has a green button on the website at cchfreedom.org that says match. You need to go there. Whatever God might lay on your heart to do, this is so important that we keep that organization strong so that we can stay strong and informed. And I hope you'll do it. Twyla, I appreciate you so much. Thanks for staying over with us. And uh, we'll talk to you again real soon. Uh, I, I just uh, keep us informed as things develop. God bless. All right, folks. We'll be back after this. Again, cchfreedom.org is the website. we got our news coming up here at the top of the hour. We'll be back. We will never compromise our principles and standards. We will never give away our freedom. We will never abandon our belief in God. Thank you for joining us. This has been an FISM production. Become a Walmart Plus member and be the first in line to shop the hottest online Black Friday deals four hours before everyone else. So yeah, Walmart Plus helps you get the gift. The first one your kid wrote on their list like five months ago. The gift that if you could just get your hands on it will make this holiday the best holiday ever. Yeah, that gift. Become a Walmart Plus member at walmartplus.com and be the first to shop online Black Friday deals four hours before everyone else with early access. Not available to trial members while supplies last. Become a Walmart Plus member and be the first in line to shop the hottest online Black Friday deals four hours before everyone else. So yeah, Walmart Plus helps you get the gift. The first one your kid wrote on their list like five months ago. The gift that if you could just get your hands on it will make this holiday the best holiday ever. Yeah, that gift. Become a Walmart Plus member at walmartplus.com and be the first to shop online Black Friday deals four hours before everyone else with early access. Not available to trial members while supplies last. We in America 
should be grateful to God for the blessings he's given us. Don't let anyone tell you that America's best days are behind her. We have got to fight for this nation because I believe with all my heart this nation is in fact one nation under God. Welcome back, Financial Issues. I'm Dan Seeley. It's great to be here. Of course, it's the top of the hour. We're going to get to a news update and our ag report. Then we're going to get right back to uh, phones. So uh, stay with us. Well, FISM.TV, our news program, um, I hope you are watching it by now. I know I keep keep saying it, but, you know, there's always new listeners and people hearing us or watching us for the very first time. And every night at 7 o'clock, you can watch evening news, real evening news, just good old news. And uh, we hope that you will do that, uh, FISM.TV. We don't make any um, bones about it. We are coming from, a obviously, a Christian worldview with our news, but we are, not, we are reporting stories that uh, you're not going to hear uh, on any other station or any other news because of that. But we are just going to report the news, and we're going to report it honestly and straightforward. And I think that's what we need today, and I'm sure you know that as well as anybody. So FISM.TV is the website, Financial Issues, FISM.TV, FISM.TV, and just click on the news button. Or if you go there at 7 o'clock Eastern Time every night, you can just put Watch Live, and you'll be able to watch the news at 7 o'clock each evening. So I hope you'll do that. Uh, You won't regret it, and you will come back over and over again. And you can do that on our app as well, I believe. So uh, check that out, or Roku or Amazon TV. You can watch it there. I generally watch it on a Roku uh, channel. All right, here comes Ian Patrick with our news. Ian, how's it going? What's going going on? Going pretty well, Dan. How's it going with you? Good. Good. Uh, well, let's start off with some uh, political news here. Uh, first of all, we have an uh, article on this going up later today, so be sure to check for this. But the Defense Department admitted to the presence of immediate family members still in Afghanistan in a memo sent on November 4th. Now, this memo was written by Colin Kale, the Undersecretary of Defense, and the memo ultimately asks U.S. military personnel and DOD civilians to reach out to his office if any known immediate family members still in Afghanistan want to get out. NBC News wrote in their report on the matter that there are, quote, several dozen immediate family members of U.S. service members in Afghanistan, and they cited Defense Department officials for that uh, little tidbit there. Now, obviously, uh, this isn't technically news that there are still Americans in Afghanistan. The unfortunate thing is the information on this has been slowly and steadily trickling out out of the uh, Defense Department and the federal government. And uh, now it just confirms that there are still family members who want to get out that are still in Afghanistan. Uh, At first, they were saying maybe there was a couple hundred Americans left that wanted to get out. And then that number rose to about 450. And now they're saying there's still a few dozen who are not not even U.S. service members, but family members that are still stuck over there. Mm -hmm. So, um, like I said, look forward to that article coming out later today. Uh, There's some really important information in there. Uh, Some other news we have. A new poll indicates that the majority of Americans oppose the Biden administration's plan to pay families of illegal immigrants separated at the southern border and that most Americans want the border closed until the ongoing crisis is resolved. Now, the migrant payment thing has been sort of an issue the last couple of days. President Biden has suggested that uh, the, the initial report on paying migrants was garbage. 
He later clarified what he meant to say was the amount was garbage. The original amount is supposed to be $450,000 to families whose children were separated under the Trump administration. And he said that amount is what was garbage. But there's been some confusing statements from both Biden and from his uh, press secretary as well. So it's kind of up in the air. Nobody's quite sure what to think of it. But nonetheless, according to the poll, 55% of Americans support closing the U.S.-Mexico border until the issues caused by migrant caravans, human trafficking, and drug smuggling are brought under control, while 32% opposed that idea. And then, according to the migrant payments, it found that 67% of Americans disapprove of paying families separated at the border, and 56% saying they strongly approve. So that's over, er, strongly disapprove, excuse me. So that's over half of Americans saying they strongly disapprove with that measure. And only 19% of uh, American voters said that they approved of making such payments, which is under even just a quarter of Americans who were polled in this. So interesting uh, to see how Americans think of that particular uh, issue there. And some other well, news. It's, the, oh, go ahead. It's, it's hard to believe that it's even coming up. I mean, I, I can't imagine there's going to be too many Americans to say, yeah, give, give a family a, a million dollars, maybe even more, uh, depending on how many members they have. In the family, I mean, it really is. These are taxpayer dollars that we're giving somebody money for breaking the law. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, there there was a report it, that actually said, uh, I, I think they said if each family member were to get clo- $900,000, uh, it would cost the American taxpayer about $1 billion to be able to pay for yeah. all of those families I that mean, they just, expect to give that amount to. Wow, um, that's insane. sort of like the max amount. So, yeah, it would be a huge cost to the American taxpayer. Absolutely. In some other news, the White House released a fact sheet on Tuesday detailing a plan to designate $17 billion from the newly passed $1 trillion infrastructure bill in order, to, in order to address the backlogs plaguing America's shipping ports. Part of the plan includes using over $240 million to modernize ports and marine highways within the next 45 days and $3.4 billion to upgrade obsolete inspection facilities and allow more efficient international trade through the northern and southern borders. Now, personally... I don't know if that's completely falls under infrastructure. The supply chain backlogs feels like a different issue, but I'm not an expert in that matter. That's just my opinion. Mm. Ian Patrick, FISM News. Thank you, uh, Ian. Sure do appreciate that. And here comes Craig Hager with our Ag Report. We'll be back. This is Craig Haugard with your financial issues Ag update for November 10th. All eyes were on the monthly USDA supply and demand report yesterday. And for corn, the report was about as expected. The USDA increased the national average yield by a half a bushel per acre, up to 177 bushels per acre. This increased total production by 43 million bushels. On the demand side of things, they increased ethanol demand by 50 million bushels, which put the projected carryout at 1,493,000,000 bushels. At the close, the December futures were three and a quarter cents higher, settling at five dollars. 54 and three quarter cents per bushel. Bean traders were caught by surprise when the USDA pegged the national average yield at 51.2 bushels per acre. Traders had been expecting to see the national average yield increase, but instead it was trimmed by three tenths of a bushel. This resulted in production being down 23 million bushels when the trade had actually been looking for production to gain a little bit over the previous month's report. On the demand side of the equation, the USDA cut exports by 40 million bushels, which put the projected carryout at 340 million bushels. At the close, the January futures were 23.5 cents higher as they finished at $12.12 per 
per bushel. The wheat numbers saw very little change from last month's report. We did see a little tweaking of the import and export numbers, which, at the end of the day, placed the projected carryout at 583 million bushels, which was up 3 million from last month's projection. At the close, Minneapolis December futures were 15 cents higher, settling at $10.23 and quarter cents per bushel. Kansas City was 12 and quarter cents higher, closing at 793 and a half, and Chicago futures were up 10 and a half cents to close at $7.78 and a half cents per bushel. Bushel. The U.S. cotton estimates were largely unchanged from October. The U.S. production forecast is slightly higher, coming in at 18.2 million bales, while domestic use and exports were unchanged. U.S. ending stocks were increased by 200,000 bales to stand at 3.4 million. At the close, we had December futures up 283 points, settling at $119.38 per hundredweight. Livestock futures all retreated in yesterday's trade. We had the February live cattle 42.5 cents lower, closing at $136.70 per hundredweight, while January feeder cattle were 50 cents lower, closing at $159.80 per hundred. February lean hog futures lost ground as well. They finished down 62.5 cents, closing at $78.75 per hundred. Class 3 milk futures have now closed higher every day this week. The USDA reduced their milk production forecast for both 2021 and 2022 because of lower expected dairy cow numbers and slower growth in milk per cow. At the close, the December futures were up 43 points, settling at 1811. Meat cutout values were mixed. Choice box beef ended the day 85 cents lower, closing at 287.80. Select boxes were $2.02 higher as they ended up at 270.62. Pork carcass cutout values retreated. In fact, they were $2.31 lower for the day, ending at $92.55 per hundredweight. This has been Craig Haugard with your Financial Issues Ag Update. We'll be right back with more financial issues after this. Welcome back, Financial Issues. I'm Dan Celia. It's great to be here. 610-363-1110. 610-363-1110. I do want to go to calls. Um, I haven't looked. I could have done that at the break. I didn't, but I didn't look at the markets. I, I expect they're down a uh, fair amount. But anyway, I'm going to have to wait. because. Oh, what did I say? Was it coming up here? No, it isn't. Anyway, yeah, we are negative. Oh, wow. Uh, this is not bad at all. I mean, we're down about, I mean, the S&P is almost on the flat line. It is red, but barely. The NASDAQ's only down 0.13 and the, and the Dow's down 0.14. So a uh, quick recovery from the horrible, horrible um, 30-year lows or 30-year highs in inflation, uh, consumer price index coming out uh, today and a huge, huge problem. October, the biggest uh, uh, surge in inflation in more than 30 years. Uh, I, you have to go back to like 1987, maybe 88, somewhere in that neighborhood, uh, to see a surge as fast. I mean, uh, a very, very long time ago. And it looks like some traders are just shrugging it off. I don't really have a problem with that. Traders just kind of blowing this off because the smart traders knew it was coming. I mean, I don't think, I, I don't know that, there could have been, I thought it was kind of odd that the markets were dipping on the news just because, uh, yeah, I mean, we knew this was coming. We've been talking about it here 
since February. Uh, we knew it was coming. We knew it was going to get worse. Knew it was going to get worse towards the end of the year and into the first quarter of next year. So uh, what's happening was uh, should have been factored in. And I think buyers are coming in and using this as an opportunity uh, to buy in a little bit lower maybe than they might have. There's not going to be that. There hasn't been that many dips. And the dips we have haven't been very uh, long-lasting. So um, Bank of America is hiking the price target for uh, Tesla uh, and the EV stocks in general. So uh, Tesla shares climbed uh, uh, right now. or They're up 17%. This is after getting clobbered all week long. So uh, I said uh, just earlier to Seth, it'll probably be over uh, by today and back on track tomorrow. It looks like it was over yesterday, and it's back on track today. So I guess that's uh, good good news. Uh, American Airlines Pilots uh, Unions is rejecting holiday bonus pay and seeking permanent changes for the airlines. Um, also, we heard about a lawsuit against one of the airlines. We don't know who it is. Uh, they're keeping it uh, under under wraps, but there are crews, uh, airline crews, that are suing the airlines for um, over this vaccine mandate and putting them on basically permanent leave uh, with no pay. In other words, firing them over this vaccine. So um, very, very interesting. And we're going to see these lawsuits continue to escalate. All right, uh, 610-363-1110. Let me get to phones. Let me go to uh, Brian. Brian's calling us from Oregon. Hey, Brian. Morning, Dan. How are you, sir? Good. Hey, thank you for having Twyla on. That's always a blessing. Yeah, it always is. Uh, she's, she's, uh, she's really just up on this stuff more than anybody I know, and she's, she's a great asset. Yes, and we all need to continually be informed on that end of it, don't we? we so um, my, my, um, my question for you is, I got a 20-year-old uh, Silverado that I've been hanging on to, and, but I need to upgrade to something that pulls better and uh, 1500 So, And you know what the situation is nationally. I'm wondering, what's the deal with this chip thing? Is it going to break loose and when? And is it a good idea to hold off and wait? Uh, or, you know, what, what do you yeah. think is going to happen? Yeah, I would hold off and wait. Uh, I would wait. And I think it's going to start loosening up uh, end of January, I hope. Uh, but, you know, every time we look, there's another snag uh, in, in the works. But um, I think it's going to, <clears throat> hold off. It has loosened up a little bit. It's getting a little bit better, but this is, this is not an ideal time for car manufacturers to really get in heavily into production. They are producing 2022 models, but they're doing it very slow uh, tr- trucks and, and cars, both. Um, and some are producing um, the cars and trucks with a minimal amount of the chips that they need with the idea of when they get the chips, they will have kind of a recall situation where they can actually put them in later. Uh, That bothers me a little bit. I don't know that I would want to go through that, but I think it is going to loosen up. And I think by January or by the end of January, 
into February, I think things are going to start to flow a little bit better for um, car manufacturers. So this has been a great time for car manufacturers in the, in the sense that they have been able to retool, uh, re-innovate, and they have been doing that, as a matter of fact. They have been spending money doing that on various types of robotics and automation in their plants. Plants have been shut down, and uh, they've had a good chance to uh, gear up for the uh, EV uh, revolution that is that uh, they're all going to be dealing with. So right. I would hold off. So how, how's that going to affect the used uh, truck uh, uh, market, do you think? The used truck market is going to stay strong uh, through, I think, all of next year. Um, okay. It, I just had this conversation with a, a large car dealer yesterday. And um, they don't see it because there are that you know there's that those people that in certain areas of the country, especially for trucks, that uh, want that that are going to want used trucks, regardless of what the new trucks are doing. They wouldn't buy a new truck anyway, even if they were available. And the used trucks or the used cars just aren't out there. So the inventory of used cars are going to start to pick up a little bit. As, as the new, new car inventory picks up. But I think the market for it is still going to be strong, and I don't see prices necessarily coming down on used vehicles anytime um, until maybe at best the middle of fourth quarter next year. Right. Okay. Well, and yep. maybe that's too late. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. I, I was just looking at one, and, uh, you know, I just thought, huh, oh, should I wait on this? But, yeah, okay. Well, thank you so much. I yep. appreciate that. All right. Thanks, Brian. Glad you called. You have, you have a good yep. day. Bye-bye. You too. Let me go to um, Boyce. Boyce calling us from Arkansas. Hey, Boyce. Good morning, Dan. Thanks for uh, taking my call. Sure uh, thing. My wife, my wife and our partners, and we appreciate the godly financial wisdom and the uh, you know, sharing the truth and voice of reason that you that you provide your listeners every day. Mm, thank you, Boyce. I appreciate your partnership so much. Thank you. You know, I think I think one of the things what I like to discuss is you know how voters or how listeners uh, or our nation gets its news. Sometimes we don't get it broken down into its truest form, and I think we can look at this administration. And you could go through every cabinet member and see and point out the things that they're totally focused on. That it, that is not that does not benefit this country, and if you look at the price of gasoline, and if you look at the reaction of the Secretary of Energy last week when she was laughing about when asked if she had a plan, and she had no plan. It's ridiculous. This country uh, right now, every single American is being impacted, and when you can break this down in the simplest forms. And it just in this area right now, gas is a dollar thirty a gallon more than it was a year ago, more than it was January twentieth, right? Mm-hmm. And if for an average working person, that equates to twenty six dollars a week, sixty five cents an hour. And if you factor in taxes and equate that or forecast that out of the year, people are being impacted for gasoline alone to the tune of seventeen hundred sixty dollars a year. That doesn't count the food and the the other things that they purchase, the consumer goods that they purchase, and you talk about this every day, but this is a, I, I, it's, it's, in, it's just in baffling how this administration 
is literally hurting every single American in the pocketbook in a way that is it, it's 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 totally un-American, and uh, it's just very baffling, man. Very baffling. It it's it's it is and it isn't. I mean, it is baffling because it's hard to believe uh, that it could be happening when it doesn't need to. To have a self-inflicted economic crisis is insane. It's one thing to have a financial crisis that creates all the problems. It's another thing to uh, just have a government that is self-inflicting pain on every American. And, you know, what will even be more baffling is that in November, a year from now, uh, people will actually vote for that. I don't think they're going to win. They're not going to get enough votes, but there's going to be anybody that would even vote for a party that is intentionally trying to um, collapse the American economy because they need a crisis, another crisis, more of a crisis to accomplish what they want to accomplish. And I think they have uh, dramatically miscalculated. And I think um, they continue to take um, their base and the American people as just being stupid. And they think everybody, what we got to hope for is that they don't stop. We got that they continue the divisiveness. When you can hear a secretary of transportation making infrastructure a racial issue, I can't imagine how much worse it can get. Talking about a bridge being a a racial issue, just assuming that every inner city African-American person can't drive a car or doesn't want to drive a car, If they want to fix the problem, if that's the problem, give everybody a car, but they can't do that because that requires gasoline and they can't do that. So, but we, they make every issue a divisive issue for America. Everything is about race and dividing. They know it's the only way they can win, but they're seeing now that they're wrong because everybody is sick and tired of the garbage so i hope they don't quit but it is beyond imagination how this could be happening when it doesn't need to and the only thing we can do is make the change happen and make sure it happens and the only way that's going to happen Welcome back, Financial Issues. I'm Dan Celia. It's great to be here. 610-363-1110. You know, let me just follow up on Boyce um, and, and you know, the from Arkansas. You know, it is hard to believe. It is hard to believe what's going on. And the only thing we can do is rise up, stay strong, and keep rising up. We cannot let up. We need to rise up. And if we think we're, we're letting up, we got to suck it up. So lots of things we've got to do. Um, but, you know, Virginia really was, a, you know, I, I said it the day after the election, 
With unlimited free delivery, a Walmart Plus membership helps with whatever life throws your way. And the holidays throw a lot. Like when you make a gift list, check it twice, but still forget someone. Or when you plan a dinner for four, but 14 show up. Or when you turn away for two seconds and your dog eats the turkey. Bad boy, Dino! Walmart Plus saves the holidays with unlimited free delivery on fresh groceries and more at everyday low prices. Start your free trial membership at walmartplus.com. $35 order minimum. Restrictions apply. See membership details. With unlimited free delivery, a Walmart Plus membership helps with whatever life throws your way. And the holidays throw a lot. Like when you make a gift list, check it twice, but still forget someone. Or when you plan a dinner for four, but 14 show up. Or when you turn away for two seconds and your dog eats the turkey. Bad boy, Dino! Walmart Plus saves the holidays with unlimited free delivery on fresh groceries and more at everyday low prices. Start your free trial membership at walmartplus.com. $35 order minimum. Restrictions apply. See membership details. It was the most encouraging thing that has happened in such a long time for all of us because this is not a purple state. Virginia is as blue as blue gets, uh, has been for a long time. Um, To get an amazing lieutenant governor, uh, African-American, first African-American ever to be uh, voted into office in Virginia, lieutenant governor. She's an amazing woman, former former Marine. a woman that has lived a lot of life talking common sense and just didn't have any money, didn't have any money, and she wins. Do you know why she won? She won because of all the Democrats that voted Republican. The same with the governor. Democrats voting Republican. It's the only way they could have won. It's the only way they could have won. They had the largest turnout in, in the history of the state of Virginia the largest turnout of voters in any election happened. We see the attorney general, Hispanic uh, guy, gets elected, uh, overwhelmingly got the nod. Why? Because, again, Democrats saying, I've had enough of these morons. I'm, I'm sick and tired of hearing they're not getting anything done. We've got this you know, critical race theory that they're lying to us, saying it's not there, and we know it is, trying to tell us how to raise our children. and But the number one reason was the economy. They know it's going in the tank. And, and the, beauty, the beautiful part of Virginia is that everybody in the state quickly understood that Biden owned everything. He owns it all. He owns it all. And I know I hear people that voted for Biden that are blaming Trump. But the funny part about it is even the administration's not blaming Trump. They're remaining silent, but they're not blaming anybody because they know where the blame goes. They're just staying silent. Everybody knows that it's on this administration. He made that very clear the first day he came into office and shut down the Keystone Pipeline. It was very clear that their agenda, they were proud and taunting the fact that they were wiping away everything that Trump did. And we have millions of illegal immigrants, drug dealers, human traffickers, child traffickers, Coming across the border, murder rates going up, 
crime, crime in every aspect going up, drug addiction going up, opioid epidemic in every single state in America now, all because of the Biden administration. All because of the Biden administration. And guess what's going to happen? Panic's going to set in to the Democrats when they realize in November that they are losing the Hispanic vote. You know why they don't help Cuba? You've heard me say this before. Because Cubans don't vote Democratic. They vote Republican. That's why they don't want anybody. They're not going to help them out. Those people are starving there. No work. Getting, I mean, human atrocities. And we're doing nothing to help them. They should be allowed in for political asylum. They should be allowed immediately in. But no, Democrats aren't going to do that. They lost Florida because of of the Cubans. That's what they think. And that's what's happening now with Hispanics. What are they going to do? They're going to be building a wall. They're going to be building a wall. The wall they want to tear down, they're going to be building it back up again because they're going to come to the realization that nothing's going to work. Now they're they're hanging their hat on the idea that we, you and I, are going to give a billion dollars or so to the refugees that, that came here illegally and broke the law, came here illegally, and we're going to give them money for separating them from their children instead of prosecuting the traffickers who intentionally separated them from their children so they could use their children for other gang members and other people to get across the border. So what does President Trump do? He establishes a DNA test at the border. So are they your children? Okay, let me just do a little finger prick here and find out. Then it started to slow down. You think we're going to do that here in this administration? People are wising up. They're using common sense. They're using the intellect that they have. They're sick and tired of the Democrats telling them how stupid they are. They're sick and tired of it. They're sick and tired. The base, the base of the Democratic Party being told how to vote, why to vote, where to vote, when to vote, how many times to vote. They're sick and tired of it, and they're getting nothing. They don't want a lot. They would like a job, though. So President Trump, without wooing them, he knew he didn't have them to vote. It was too late. The election was over. He didn't get, he got a a large percentage of the vote, but he didn't care. He went about the business of making America great by creating the lowest unemployment rate by all minority groups, or at least three minority groups, blacks, Asians, and Hispanics. The lowest unemployment rate in the history of the nation. He put them all back to work because he created an economy where they were needed, where they had more opportunity than they ever had. He didn't have to incentivize them to go to work. They wanted to go to work, but they needed the opportunities and he created the opportunities. 
And now, now, if they didn't then, those same, that so, same voting block has come to the understanding of the reality of what happened. There's going to be a change, but we got to keep fighting. We got to be like Virginia in every single state in the midterm elections. We shouldn't allow one Democrat, and there's 14 Republicans that shouldn't be allowed in either. We got to raise up. We got to raise up in the primaries for those Republicans to get them out of office. Kevin McCarthy, the leader included. He doesn't even, he's not even capable of getting 13 Republicans to caucus with the Republican Party. How bad is that? That doesn't happen in the Democratic side. Nancy Pelosi whips everybody into shape. McCarthy can't do it. He can't do it. And I think everybody knew that. And, I, you know, he doesn't, uh, there's no reason why we should keep him. He turned on Trump the day after the election. He was one of the, the turncoats. I laugh when I get these, uh, the, the RNC sends me these fundraisers using McCarthy. I always write them and say, really? You, you think that's a motivation for, you, for me to give? I mean, come on. All right, let me go to phones. Uh, let me go to Mark in Montana. Hey, Mark. Hey, good morning, brother. I got good a morning. fast question here, and I'll, I'll hang up here. Okay. It, it deals with it deals with growth and value stocks. Which which does better in inflationary times? <clears throat> Please give an example. <clears throat> Excuse me. And on your on your uh, site, I see that you depict growth stocks. Uh, are uh, well, generally the rest of uh, value. And, uh, and before I hang up here, um, but before I forget, happy birthday, all you jarheads. Temper fine. <laughs> God bless. Go ahead, Dan. All right. Thank you, Mark. Um, so growth and value are the, can be the same. There's, so there is growth stocks that, so I have uh, a number of stocks now I don't know what you determined, how you determine value, probably like most people, different than the way I would determine it. Um, because I would tell you the vast majority of the stocks, as a matter of fact, there was one out of the five that I put on the list this week that was not a, that I would not have considered a value stock, more a growth stock. But they're all growth stocks. But um, so, uh, there's a difference between growth and income stocks, obviously, is far greater than growth and value. I like, I like value stocks. I, they both will do well during inflationary times. I believe uh, the value stocks probably do a little bit better than the growth stocks. But uh, growth stocks in general, I'm, I'm, gonna, not gonna say, I'm gonna stop saying that because I'm confusing myself. Equities in general, equities in general, regardless of their growth or value, regardless of their valuation, let's put it that way, regardless of their valuation. Equity stocks in general need to be in everybody's portfolio during inflationary times because they will act as a hedge against a lot of inflation, depending on what they're in, of course, but they will act as a hedge and they need to be in people's portfolio. So equities are...
incredibly important. It almost doesn't matter which is going to outperform the other value or growth because they're going to be very close to each other. But equities are important to be in portfolios during times of economic downturn. The opinions and recommendations expressed by Dan are his own and do not necessarily represent the opinions of this station or any of the show's sponsors. All right, welcome back. Financial Issues. I'm Dan Celia, 610-363-1110. we got two lines open. You queue your call up. You'll get right in the queue right now if you call 363-1110. And uh, we'll get to your call. Let me go to Peter. Peter's calling us from Arkansas. Hey, Peter. Hey, Dan. Uh, first of all, I just want to say thank you so much for your ministry and faithful witness uh, and your boldness. It's such an encouragement to all of us, mm-hmm. all of your listeners. Um, I'm a partner, and I was just asking if you found any more information about the Evergrande contagion spreading to uh, foreign banks and foreign investors? Um, yeah, I, I, I continue to gather information on that, Peter. I I uh, got some um I had some waiting for me when, when the show was over yesterday. I went through that last night. Um, got some more this morning. Uh, I'm waiting for, for more, but I uh, continue to get fed more and more information. Uh, there is little doubt that it is not going to spread to, um, you know, international banks. And so I... I don't think we can separate some of the international banks. For instance, uh, J.P. Morgan in the U.K., I mean, it's an international bank, yes, but it's still going to have American uh, uh, consequence and uh, all of the others, for that matter. So uh, there are some doing, uh, having, uh, will have direct impact on 401ks and investment strategies. I mean, that's going to uh, continue to see. But whether it has a real dramatic impact on the international banking system, which will then in, in impact the U.S. banking system, the verdict's still out on that. It's very difficult to get a handle uh, on derivatives and credit default swaps. They're two uh, uh, instruments that I'm... I need to have a handle on. I don't have any trouble getting a handle on how much is out there. I don't even have any trouble uh, figuring out who's got the most and where uh, the majority of is and what bank could be at risk of collapse. Um, And the banks that could collapse without collapsing the system and the banks that could collapse and collapse the system. We could not handle a collapse of the system of credit default swaps and and uh, derivatives. We couldn't we couldn't handle that. Uh, no, I mean the world couldn't handle that. Would be impossible. And so I don't know that. Um, I don't think the China um, real estate investment trust, if you can call it that. Uh, the Evergrande uh, contagion. I don't. I don't know that it's big enough to do that. And do I know for certain there were lots of uh, uh, derivatives, credit default swaps, mortgage backs, different mortgage back kinds of things that were involved in that. But 
so we can find out how much, but we can't find out who has it or what they have. And we can find out who has the swaps themselves or the derivatives themselves, their sales, but we can't, we don't know where it's from. We don't know whether it's China real estate or um, Indonesian oil. You know, we're not, we're not, uh, you know, we know that all those things exist, but it's a little bit harder to find out who's got most of it, um, you know, to be specific on what, where, what it, what it is they have. So it's really a hard, hard thing to gather. And uh, I would suspect my, so what I'm doing is I'm concentrating on certain banks. So uh, the two, the number one and number two bank in Germany is uh, one that I am concentrating on. Um, I am watching what Norway does in their sovereign wealth fund. Norway's very smart and doesn't have a whole lot of derivatives, but where they might be. Um, I am concerned about Israel, and I'm watching that closely because Israel is very close to China from an investment perspective. Um, so, uh, you know, we're, I'm looking at all those things. I mean, from from uh, the glance that I have right now, I don't think it's going to have a big impact on the American financial uh, situation. I think it could yet, but it doesn't look like it's going to. Um I think it could have an impact on bottom lines of banks uh, at the end of uh, first quarter next year uh, or second quarter for sure. But, and then we'll know exactly what it was, but I don't think it's going to be uh, big enough to create real problems. If it is, I don't really care about an individual bank having a real problem. I do care if it's a problem with say the derivative market. Uh, some years ago, I don't know how long you've been listening, Peter, but some years ago, um, about three years ago, I'm going to say, uh, Angela Merkel came out and said that she wasn't going to bail out Deutsche Bank. That was on a Tuesday. I remember very well. And uh, I was on the air and I laughed about it. I said, that is the funniest thing I've ever heard because she, she says she's not going to bail them out. She has no choice. And on Thursday, she bailed him out. Um, it, it was a ridiculous statement because they have such a large position in derivatives. If they ever went under, the domino effect would go across the world. That's how much they had. It would go across the world. I mean, there was no, there was no if, ands, or buts. It was a, it was a ridiculous statement. She had a bit. They had to bail him out, and they did. Um, so they're the kinds of things that you know, that, that we, we worry about. And, um, there could always be a point in time where a bailout is not feasible. And that would be a problem. I don't think the China thing was that big, but it's China. What we think is only half of what we know. And that's just the way it goes. So we really don't know how big the problem is. Um, we think, well, it's related to housing. Uh, is it? I don't know. We don't know that for sure. That's what they're saying. But um, so it's, it's going to remain to be seen, I guess. And we'll have to watch it. But from what I understand from the people I've talked to that are closer to it than me, I, I think we'll probably uh, get through it.
Okay, great. That was really helpful. Yep. Thank you, Dan. Thanks, Peter. All right, glad you called. Yeah, it is. Uh, but it, what it points out are some of the things I stress over on a daily basis. It is really, really uh, hard. And so the information, um, I pay, um, the ministry pays, not me. Uh, we pay a lot of money every year to subscribe to certain organizations that um, get us uh, information that we need. Some of it is publicly transmitted or open to the public information, but good luck trying to get it. And it's very difficult. So they gather it all in one place and send it to us. Um, one of the issues, because it's not controlled by the U.S., is the International Bank of Settlements. The International Bank of Settlements is what settles out all the settles out uh, just about every international transaction, but all the derivatives, credit default swaps, and other um, um, hybrid kinds of products. So that goes, that's running through the International Bank of Settlements. So needless to say, that's a huge source uh, for us and for a lot of other people. I suspect there are some that don't uh, take the sourcing that they could from that um, institution I do. I have to. Um, I think everybody has to, but a lot of them don't don't do it. Um, I've never been in a position, and I hope I never get in the position as as a ministry to um, to have to cut back on on those kinds of uh, that kind of information that we uh, have organizations gather for us. I hope we don't ever have to cut that back. That would that would hurt hurt me and ultimately hurt our partners, I suspect. All right, let me go to Kirby. Kirby's calling us from Florida. Hey, Kirby. Good morning, Dan. Good morning. Dan, we've heard about this $600 or this $10,000 snitch rule that the Biden administration wanted to uh, yep. put on us at the banks. I was just informed today by my credit union that they will no longer be depositing or cashing checks made out to cash. Is that widespread? Is Christian community involved in that? Is that part of this snitch rule they're trying to put into place? I don't know about that. I don't, I, I've not heard that from any, any, I mean, I've heard for years banks have stopped taking that. Um, my, my bank, um, you stopped that many, many years ago that you had to make it out to yourself. Um, but, uh, so I don't think that's um, I don't think that's a part of that. Um, it, there's no there's no difference from a reporting perspective on a now a ten thousand and one dollar uh, check made out to cash than there would be made out to yourself in name. There's it's it's no different. It's not going to impact uh, any kind of reporting. They report the cash against you uh, just like they would report it if the check were made out to you. There hasn't, that's, that's never, you know, that, that, that's not changed. So I think it's probably, it's probably much more of a clerical thing for your credit union um, than, than it is anything else. Um, so they probably had some fraudulent activity recently and 
or you know couldn't track it down uh, because for some reason because it was made out of cash. So they're probably, uh, I, I imagine it's more that it's definitely not connected to what's happening uh, with all the other stuff. Thanks, Kirby. I appreciate it. I hope that helps you a little bit. Folks, we got lines open, 610-363-1110. If you got to leave us, I hope you have a great day. Another hour of financial issues coming up right after this. God bless. Jesus said, go sell all that you have. Give to the poor. Take up the cross. Follow me. It's not your money I want. I want your heart. Thank you for joining us. This has been an FISM production. With unlimited free delivery, a Walmart Plus membership helps with whatever life throws your way. And the holidays throw a lot. Like when you make a gift list, check it twice, but still forget someone. Or when you plan a dinner for four, but 14 show up. Or when you turn away for two seconds and your dog eats the turkey. Bad boy, Dino! Walmart Plus saves the holidays with unlimited free delivery on fresh groceries and more at everyday low prices. Start your free trial membership at walmartplus.com. $35 order minimum restrictions apply. See membership details. With unlimited free delivery, a Walmart Plus membership helps with whatever life throws your way. And the holidays throw a lot. Like when you make a gift list, check it twice, but still forget someone. Or when you plan a dinner for four, but 14 show up. Or when you turn away for two seconds and your dog eats the turkey. Bad boy, Dino! Walmart Plus saves the holidays with unlimited free delivery on fresh groceries and more at everyday low prices. Start your free trial membership at walmartplus.com. $35 order minimum restrictions apply. See membership details. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review on iTunes. <laughs> 